All right, we are live with the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Um, in case you don't know, this is a place where our conversations about horror films are, uh, they're kind of otherworldly. That's that's one way I'd put it. Um, it's a place where we take a moment once a week to come out of our shell and discuss our fears, our pods, if you will, trying my best to lay this on thick. Um, we critique ourselves in light of the films that we find frightening. That's what we do here. This is a place where we shun people who like movies like The Bye Bye Man and Annabelle. And we actually go like this. We point our fingers at them and go, like that. We do that every time we find someone who likes Annabelle. And so this week, we are actually discussing um, the 1978 horror film. We'll probably jump between the three different versions of this film. But in particular, we're going to hit the 1978 horror film Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which has like an all-star cast of Don Donald Sutherland, Jeff Goldblum, Leonard Nimoy, Brooke Adams, and Veronica Cartwright. And we basically follow these folks as the people of San Francisco slowly but surely um, become assimilated, maybe the best word I, I can think of, and replaced with dull and emotionless versions of themselves, thanks to an unseen and unnoticed alien invasion brought about not by flying metal ships, but by spores, of all things. And so I'm here today with Antonio, Shayra, Ben, and Garrett, and I think this was Antonio's third film to pick in his list of great horror films to review. Uh, his first being Sunshine, his second being The Wicker Man, the original Wicker Man. I, Always have to clarify, not the Nicolas Cage version. Please, please know that. Um, so it's at this point where I, and I really want to mention this before I hand this over to Antonio. Like, I think we're starting to get like the fear schema for Antonio. We're starting to see what scares him in his three films. So let me, I, let me just, I'll, let me throw this out there. Let's see, see if I'm right. The ramping up, paranoia, nothing as it seems, anxiety-laden, loss of control sort of vibes throughout his films, uh, throughout his selections. There's always like an isolation within a context of like a vastness in the films that he selects. So right, like in Sunshine, it's the vastness of space juxtaposed with the isolation of like the Icarus and what's going on in the Icarus and everyone dying and everything closing in on him, right? In The Wicker Man, it's like this open island filled with free spirits and people with an openness to extra canonical forms of spirituality juxtaposed onto a protagonist that has very stark and strict religious convictions. Um, and in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, it's an entire city and indeed possibly an entire world that gets closed in on, as it were, by this alien presence. Uh, the world as we know it starts to become smaller and smaller and people get potified and they get replaced. And this giant city that we all know of as San Francisco effectively becomes smaller and smaller as the humanity gets choked out of it. So anxiety and paranoia and like the ramping up of isolation generally within a context of vastness, these are all things that I'm starting to notice about Antonio's films. So far, all of his films to me feel like some form of a person is alone in a raft in the middle of an ocean dying of dehydration, right? All that water, but but none to drink, nothing to drink, right? It's all this openness, but totally alone, right? Very interesting. Um, by the way, it's $300 for that that analysis, Antonio. You owe us $300 for that. For that like deadly you analysis, he said in yeah. dad yeah. joke form. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so that is how that's how i'm starting to grasp uh, how i'm starting to grasp these films that you selected i could be wrong right so i'm gonna hand it over close, to you close. okay all right all right so i'm gonna this perfect, one I'm, facet and okay so i'm gonna hand it over to you and you can tell us what that is and tell us why you chose invasion of the body snatchers as your film to discuss all right so the one facet that, that you missed you got almost everything right the one facet that you missed is that it's not isolation in the context of like a raft in the middle of the ocean dying of dehydration. It's a raft in the middle of the ocean dying of dehydration with two other dudes who are slightly bigger and stronger than you and are getting really, really hungry. 
that's the kind of isolation. It's not it's not isolation as as a sole individual human being. It's isolation in a context of a progressive social breakdown. Um, and and what the what gazing into the abyss does to the human psyche in a social context, you know, as you look at your fellows and you see them gazing into the abyss too, and you know, not all of them are going to be as strong as you or will react the same way. And then you have to figure out how you're going to, how you're going to try and stay alive in that situation and stay sane in that situation. So that's why I like um, a lot of Lovecraftian horror as well. And that obviously ties right into Invasion of the Body Snatchers. If there ever were a, um, a well-executed Lovecraftian horror movie, it would probably be either this one or John Carpenter's The Thing. Those are the two that really um, come to my mind. And so um, this movie I actually don't particularly like on a philosophical level. I don't think that it has a particularly interesting conversation about, about the state of humanity. Um, it seems to be some sort of uh, analogy to McCarthyism in kind of a strained way, you know, the being suspicious of your neighbors and, you know, everyone trying to be conformist and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, people betraying each other and getting converted over could also be a, a, an analogy of cultism. Um, but, uh, but the thing that I really find uh, creepy about this particular movie is not only how people are taken over, but also just the, just the grossness of it. It's, it's got a body horror element to it where um, the threat is much more advanced and powerful than we are. It's depicted as an alien race, but they explicitly shy away from uh, flying saucers in a way that's interestingly sort of presages. I don't know if presages is the right word because it was already in production, but Alien came out the next year and also defined science fiction uh, monsters as, as icky again, rather than as these you know little men in flying saucers. Um, and so the body horror aspect of this, like I said, is I think only paralleled by something like alien or something like the thing, you know, there are these gross plants that are sort of biotechnological, if you will. And, um, they're incredibly insidious because where can you go in the earth? You can go at man, man retreats to the city, right. In order to escape from the wild. But what if the wild is is and and then he brings the wild back in with him once he feels the isolation? You know, the plants are a are a sign of often uh, prosperity. You know, you often see people growing gardens when they have leisure time and some extra resources to commit. So these are these are things that we we isolate ourselves through urbanity and then we bring back the wild back in and then the wild eventually eats us. It's kind of a it's kind of like the body horror sci fi version of Jurassic Park in a way. Um, and so for that reason, um, it makes the list. Not only is it just, you know, very well performed, um, it doesn't have a happy ending, which is something that I, that I appreciate in horror movies. And it's an interesting twist from the original, which does, does have a happy ending. You know, they do beat the aliens in the end. Um, but rather than for its, uh, for its plot necessarily, the, this one makes the cut because of its deeply unsettling nature and also for the, the deeply unsettling like camera work, sound work, the, the ambiance that this film generates, much in the same way as The Wicker Man. Can I jump in on a response to that? 
So uh, you said a lot of interesting things. I mean, I, I would re re reject the interpretation of thinking of it as Lovecraftian. I think that uh, you know, sort of the, the hallmark of Lovecraftian horror is precisely that it sort of it, it goes well beyond your capacity to wrap your head around. It's it's, it's uh, super rational. Whereas I think the the plot of Invasion of the Body Snatchers is quite comprehensible. I think they do, do a very nice job of explaining to you what the aliens are, what their motives are, uh, where they're coming from, and so forth. Um, but that's perhaps nitpicking. I, I do find it also strange that you said you don't really like it philosophically, but you had that nice little thing in there about plants and about how we, you know, and I thought that was a, a nice read. That seems pretty philosophical. But the key thing I want to jump in on, and again, I imagine this is going to be something we'll come back to a fair bit, is this the, the McCarthyist interpretation. Um, you know, the, the idea that, you know, everywhere you turn, you see communists and, the, you know, the neighbor next to you is becoming a communist. Um, I read, and I think it was in Stephen King's Dance Macabre, I could be wrong about that, but I think uh, uh, if, 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 somewhere I read that the, the author of the novel, Jack Finney, explicitly rejected that interpretation. He said it had nothing to do with communism. Now, again, that doesn't mean, of course, you can't read it that way, uh, but I've, I found it very interesting that he at least was sort of baffled by that particular reading of it. Um, but that is, and again, even though he denied it, that is sort of what I've always thought was sort of the, the, the standard interpretation of the story. And I actually just watched this film just last night for the first time. I thought I'd seen it before, but I hadn't. Um, and what struck me was that uh, the, what, the way I read it was that it wasn't really about communism. You know, by 78, of course, the communism was still a thing. But to me, it seemed much more about uh, uh, human relationships, in particular, intimate human relationships. You know, we, we have the, you know, the lead characters are having an affair, and then the, 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 the dentist boyfriend, you know, sort of becomes the first sort of captured alien being, which no longer and, and starts to become alienated. And there's this whole repetition about my husband is no longer my husband, my wife is no longer my wife. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's so much sort of you know, about sort of the physical intimacy of the characters and the relationship, you know, the sexual relationship in the characters. Uh, you know, again, it's the 70s, so we're, we're, we're through the summer of love. We're no longer in the 60s, you know, but we're still in San Francisco, which, of course, is my hometown. And it's, you know, very much a place where it's sort of the spirit of free love, even through the 70s, was still sort of hanging on and to a certain extent still is to this day. And sort of I, so then what, what way I read the film was about this idea of, and again, Leonard Nimoy has this whole sort of speech in there, right, about how uh, uh, when people say my husband's not my husband, what they're really afraid of is that relationships are sort of too transient, that people change within them, they jump in, they jump out, and they, we no longer make connections with people. And, you know, I, that, so that was sort of the, the, sort of the overarching sort of philosophical aspect of it that I took out of it, that it was sort of not necessarily a critique, but an analysis of or reflection on how human human relationships have changed in between the 1950s when the novel was published and the 1970s when the uh, 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 the, the film was released um, uh, from a, sort of view of where people, you know, you, you get married at 18 and you stay married the rest of your life. And by the 70s, you know, again, the divorce was on the rise. Free love was more popular. Um, and so human beings would, you know, we, we would connect with more people, but we would connect in a more shallow way. Um, and this, this idea that you never really know anyone, you never really love anyone, that they always change, that to me seemed to be the, what, what I found most philosophically interesting about the film. Yeah, what, yeah, what uh, uh, Tonio, specifically, what did what you find Lovecraftian? There was a lot going on there, but uh, I was curious what, uh, what specifically you thought was Lovecraftian, and then what did you think about uh, Garrett's interpretation? Mine's a little slightly different than both yours, but I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts. Um, the Lovecraftian element to me is that um, the well, all right, several elements. First of all, I agree with Garrett that incomprehensibility is a significant element of Lovecraftian horror that is certainly absent in this film. 
I wouldn't describe the film as overall a Lovecraftian work, I don't think. It certainly has uh, a number of Lovecraftian elements, but I don't think that the overall idea is the same sort of bottom line as Lovecraft, um, which is to show you know, the, the, the howling abyss that is at the heart of nature. This doesn't really show the howling abyss that is at the heart of nature. It doesn't even really get at the howling abyss at the heart of man, which is, of course, how we see the howling abyss that's at the heart of nature. Um, the Lovecraftian elements are that that um, your doom is already among you. It has come from the stars. It has all kinds of tentacles. You won't notice it as it insidiously infects your midst and infests you. The infestation, the theme of infestation is very strong in, in Lovecraft's work. Um, and that that what will it, it destroys your mind inevitably there's no there's no recourse against it you know once once you will you will eventually succumb to it you have to sleep eventually um they will continue to to replicate themselves and take over and it annihilates the human soul which is a core element of lovecraftian work as well it, it once you are remade in its image there isn't anything left of the original you that was fighting the good fight yeah, and I'd, I'd like to underscore the catalyst for this is sleep. I think that's that itself is somewhat Lovecraftian. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on, but sleep, when you think of sort of there, there's a unconscious or maybe a subconscious process going on that's doing the transferring of potifying you, right? And, it, and a lot of Lovecraft stuff hits on the unconscious or the subconscious, right? It, it hovers around that in a lot of the short stories. And in that sense, the transfer of being who you are to that loss of individualism, essentially your death and becoming of this other emotionally just non-existent thing is done through sleep. It's done while you're unconscious, which I think also is a, is a bit Lovecraftian. And there's enough of you left over that you can identify as yourself and identify as yourself to other people. And yet you don't even know there's anything wrong, but it's horribly wrong. Everything is wrong about you. There isn't any you left, even though it seems to be you. And that's actually what I think this is about, is I think uh, there was a couple of ways I could, we could probably cut this in terms of what we're looking at. Um, one is collectively as a society, there's, there's commentary that we could do that way. But I think, I think to me, this film struck me as more on an individual level, like the loss of individualism um, through, and, and you got to think about this again, I, it's almost impossible for us to cut this from the fact that this was a 1970s film in San Francisco, right? It's that place where it's the home of artists and eccentric, eccentrics and, and, I think this, there's a kind of counter feel to this film as a response to things like communitarianism. And, and we think of the 1970s, it's referred to as the me decade for a reason. It's, it's the kind of, uh, it's a response in a lot of ways to a loss of a cultural identity. And I think that's exacerbated by the fact that this is taking place in an artsy city like San Francisco. And I think there's something like that hovering around this film, but I see it in the, as an, at the individual level. I mean, I think there is some social commentary there about groupthink and things like that. Um, McCarthyism, that didn't strike me. It's probably because I'm not well learned enough to be able to like have that conversation well and I don't know too much about the ins and outs of all of it. I mean, I know like high school level shit about McCarthyism and that's it. Um, but to me, this sort of struck me as a loss of self, uh, a deterioration, almost a disease element, um, losing what makes you you, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. What about Shayra or Ben? What'd you guys think? Um, so... I went into this not knowing anything about Invasion of the Body Snatchers, um, but I had watched other movies that I didn't know, totally borrowed from this kind of trope. And um, so when I first started out with the 1950s version, um, which was on Netflix, I decided to watch that before I went to the 70s version. 
um, I was like, oh my gosh, I've already seen this before. Like I've seen this story so many times in so many different places. Um, most recently, I watched the TV show Brain Dead, um, totally borrowed from this storyline. And um, when I watched the 50s version, uh, it was a lot more about the social conformity, a lot more about groupthink, a lot more um, about the horrors of everybody just being a little off. Like there's just barely something wrong with them. You're like, yeah, everything is, they're exactly the same person. It's just not the same person. I know it's not the same person. Everybody's like, but they have the same memories. They have the same scars. They have the same everything. Yeah, but it's not the same person. No, it's not the same person. I just know, cause I know them, I have this feeling. And I felt like that was um, a very important aspect of it, which they did delve into into the seventies version. But uh, like this feeling you get with people, like you know that person because you felt them and um i think the way they tried to portray that in the 70s version was with a kiss i don't know like i, I know that there's like touching you know like when you get intimate with someone and they just feel weird and off um i really like this aspect of the film and um how they've done it throughout other tv shows and films this idea that we know someone so intimately that nothing is going to be able to you know block off what you know is that person you know how they make you feel you know how it feels to be with them or to touch them or to like talk to them um it was really not as subtle in the 70s version <laughs> these people were weird as fuck they were walking around like staring and doing weird things and dressing differently um i kind of like the idea that it looks and sounds and is just exactly the same person so um, that was the only part of the 70s version that I didn't like. The rest of it was fantastic. It was grotesque. All this goo and boogers and mud and bubbles and nasty stuff. I loved it. Uh, the smushing of heads and blood splattering. Just great. Um, and it's PG, right? Isn't this film yeah. PG? That's insane. Yeah, it was really gross. I was like, ugh. Like, I kept going, ugh, cringing. Like, that's nasty. But I think the best part was um, when I saw the plants kind of going like this towards their bodies. And I'm like, oh my God, Evil Dead. I'm sold, this is so <laughs> Evil Dead. And I, I loved it. Um, and, and this is the thing that really made me excited. Um, they always talk about how when you borrow from something and then turn it into your own thing, that's how you can really make a beautiful new creative work. I feel like they've done the 50s version really well in all these different remakes. And I found out they're going to be remaking this again I don't know how good it's gonna be, but I'm excited anyway, because I think this is one of those tropes that you could really do a lot with. I mean, Star Trek, Star Trek did it something with this, but with the Borg, so it could go so many places. I love it. 100 bucks, the next remake is gonna have a, a critique. It's gonna be from a technocratic perspective, that it's gonna be the loss of self from a technocratic perspective, from the little phone, little thing like this, right? That's, that's what it's gonna be. 100 bucks right now, I'm calling it. Um, since, uh, Sarah, since you bring up again, the, the, the you know, the, again, the whole, uh, I don't recognize this person. I know the person, are, are you guys familiar with the, the, uh, cap, cap grass syndrome? This is a real condition. Um, and it's absolutely fucking horrifying. It's, uh, it, it, it's basically precise. I mean, I don't know if the, uh, Jack Finney was bait heard about this syndrome because it does predate the, the the writing of the novel, but it, it's it's it seriously seems like one of those ripped from the headlines kind of things. Capcast syndrome it happens. It's a it's a neurodegenerative condition 
um, in which you see a person that you know well, your husband, your wife, your father, your son, and even though they look exactly the same, the person is convinced that they're an imposter. Um, and it's, it's, it's just really, really bizarre because it's, again, it has something to do with the way emotions are registered in the brain. Like you say, Sherry, when you see the person that you love, you are, you get that you're accustomed to having this feeling of warmth or something like that. And somehow that sort of just gets switched off in the brain apparently. And so you see the person, but you don't feel that feeling of love. So you become convinced, just completely convinced that they're someone else who's taken over their body. Um, it's well documented. There's, uh, you know, all sorts of cases. There's sort of you know, famous cases that are sort of written up in this in the, in the neuropsychology literature. Um, and it's one of those things where, like, you know, again, it's there's so many weird things. It's like if, you t if they talk to them on the phone, they will think that they're, that they're the person. They'll, they'll 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 believe they're talking to their husband. But then the person can walk around the corner, still on the phone, and they'll be like, nope, that's not my husband. That's that's an imposter right there. And there's you simply can't rationalize them out. You can't make any argument to convince them that they're wrong um, uh, because it's just that powerful and that hard, hardwired. And it's the kind of that thing is truly horrifying. I'm just going to yeah. throw that out there. Yeah, it's really scary. I mean, thankfully, it's exceptionally rare. Apparently, it is more common in women than it is in men. But still, even in women, it's exceptionally rare. So it's unlikely you'll get it. But if you get it, your life is gone. It's just that you're you're fucked. It's terrible. I like I just I think the thing that makes me so uncomfortable with that is that you would like forever be living as the main characters in these films where they're like trying so hard to convince everybody this is this is going on and everyone's going to be rationalizing because every single film even the 50s version had like a doctor rationalizing it trying to be like no that is impossible this is a you know you're just experiencing this blah 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 and they're so wrong you know it's not until they see the plants where they're like well, that's weird. <laughs> we yeah, that, probably... that was the scary part of this to me, I think. One of the scariest parts was just the, when they're all in a room talking about it, it sounds so crazy. You know what I mean? It sounds nuts. And trying to explain this to any other rational person, you can't really do it without sounding crazy, right? Um, but you know you're right. So imagine being in a scenario where you know you're right, you just know it, you are right, and there's no real ample way to explain it to someone without sounding insane. That That is itself kind of a horrifying Thing. I mean, I, I, you could take that and move it outside of Invasion of the Body Snatchers into maybe a ghost movie or a zombie movie or a vampire movie, and it's still just as scary. There's something really horrifying knowing that, I don't know if it's like an egghead thing, or I, you have the right answer, but there's no way to get it out in a way that is going to make anyone else believe you. But this is why this series of all of the different ways that this has been written is so much better than all the other horror films that try to you know have someone be a skeptic right the skeptic is always an idiot you watch all these different movies the skeptic is like this idiot you'll show them all this evidence and they're like oh, come on ghosts aren't real even though you have all this evidence showing that clearly like something will fly past and they're like clearly that was a breeze like no dude that's not a breeze like making it flip in circles and having a clown attack your child and being sucked into a tree like i'm sorry there's something obviously happening here but like with this there's no evidence. The bodies disappear or like any kind of evidence absolutely disappears. So the rational skeptic person is actually thinking straight, is actually well, being rational. That, I think that brings up a fascinating sort of general question about epistemology, right? And you know, there's the scene where Leonard Nimoy, who is the skeptic in this, right, again, is you know being told by three separate people that they witnessed this. Um, and th th there's a fair question there. At what point is 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 it rational to say okay here are three people who are who I know 
They're reasonable people. They're fair people. They're not delusional, but they're all telling me something which seems impossible. Obviously, hardcore evidence would be more convincing and better, but at what point, how much testimony are we willing to accept? You know, and this, of course, you know, can bring us back to all sorts of things like miracles and stuff like that. Um, um, but this, this question of social epistemology is a, a fascinating one if we, can, if we wanted to delve more into the philosophical side of that. I don't want to over talk, but, but I, I do have something to add to that. That is a really important thing to point out, but we should also note that Leonard Nimoy was one of the fucking pod people and he was trying to fuck with their heads too. Uh -huh. So I didn't I, want to spoiler that spoil that for anyone if they haven't seen it, but oh well. well oh no, we spoil, we'll spoil. the shit out of every single movie You've we do. You've been you, warned you, we spoil. Yeah. You not you better not be watching this if you ain't seen the movie. That's the, yeah. <laughs> But like, yeah, he he was trying to mess with them at that point and make them feel insane and make them question if they've lost it. But with the original, the OG one, they all thought he was insane until uh, they found out that some pods had been that fallen out of a truck in a car accident. A pod comes down the hallway and uh, that was when the people he had been talking to and trying to explain this to the whole time went, wait a second all right, everybody, let's go and get those pods. I mean, that's, they, the, the rational person, the second they saw the evidence was like, all right, let's go and take care of this issue. And then they were, were able to take care of it. So that is, that is what's so important about this is because the skeptic is not a dumbass. The skeptic, I, think, I think it was his glove. I think Leonard Nimoy's glove made him think non-objectively. You know? yeah, what the hell was up with that glove? So the story is, I looked this up on IMDb just because I had to know, and the story was that Leonard Nimoy specifically asked to have that glove. It wasn't supposed to be in the film, but he asked to have it as a way of him standing out in the film as having, um, just as a way of separating himself from all of the other characters in the film. That's literally the entire reason that glove is in there. He just kind of wanted to be like, oh, when someone says that person in the movie, they're referring to the guy with the glove. Um, and he, there's some reason he offers for this, that there's another film that he saw that reminded him of this, that he was like, oh, I always remember that character because he had this thing on his hand, like a glove. And that's that's the reason, which is a really shitty reason. I don't know, that seems like an actor tradecraft kind of thing. Maybe we should hold off on making those sorts of judgments unless we have- Yeah, yeah let's get let's Scott in here. Scott comes in with like a glove, like a, like a Michael Jackson glove. What are you guys talking about? Yeah. That's a good question though, Garrett, because it comes down to warrant, right? Like I, I was thinking the same sort of thing. I was thinking about warrant when it, they were all in the room trying to explain this and they're, they're all kind of sounding nuts. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, so my wife comes into the room with a bunch of her friends and they start explaining this. And they're all rational people for the most part. They're all rational people and they're talking to me and giving me, you know, and I'm hearing this, let's say I'm an outside observer and I'm hearing everything they say. And I know my wife very well and I know her friends very well. And I know my friends very well. And I'm hearing this and I got to kind of fight a couple different things. I got to fight the way in which I see the world objectively, um, the way that I view science, the way that I understand arguments even, all of that has to be taken into account in conflict with the trust that I have with those around me. And maybe there, that may not even entirely be true because there is the possibility that they could just be something, there's an error, a cognition error on their end, something that they're not privy to or aware of. So that has to be taken into account. So the question becomes like, I guess I'll just ask you guys, like if you were in that scenario and these were all people that you really knew and trusted and they're intelligent and they're professionals and they come to you and say something like this, what do you do? Do you, is your initial 
your initial gut before you clearly ask them for some sort of evidence or ask you do the explaining, what is your initial gut feeling? If this happens to you with say your spouse and your most trusted colleagues, like where would you land initially? Let's hear from Ben. Yeah, yeah, I'm curious what Ben thinks. Yeah, the psych guy, what is this? Come on, Ben. I appreciate that, thank you. Um, <laughs> so, so to answer that question, um, I don't think, uh, I don't think it would be rational, honestly, to to take somebody like that seriously who comes to you and says, you know, there's this this problem. Everyone looks the same. They're not the same. You know, how can a rational person listen to that? You know, even as a person who maybe can look at the evidence and kind of respond to that in a way where where you believe them. Because I mean, honestly, if you think about what Garrett said, right? So there actually is a disorder, you know, Capgras Capgras syndrome and you have that sort of like to fall back on. And I think that's a really interesting point about psychology and, and taking everything to that point too, is because anything that sort of falls outside of your expectations and the norm is immediately turned into a disorder in some ways. Um, and to even expand on that though, there's actually uh, something cool that I, I wanted to mention called the uh, prosopagnosia that, that sort of takes that a step further. And uh, like, whereas Capgrass syndrome sort of like maps onto the movie exactly, this is a little bit different, but essentially what happens is you entirely lose the ability to recognize faces even. Um, and that even applies to your own face, right? Like if you look in the mirror, you, you can't recognize even your own face. So like there, there are these sort of conditions out there that we could say, okay, well, if somebody comes to me with this problem, well, it's clearly gotta be that, you know, yes, it's very rare, but you know, I have this little box to push this into because I think your, your cognitive, uh, sort of architecture there is just so going to be so resistant to any, any kind of massive shift like that that you know naturally you're going to reject it and i don't think you would be wrong to do so um so that sort of goes to maybe maybe one of the things that i find most horrifying about this movie perhaps is because when you have a threat like that i mean we really have no way to to kind of respond to it like if it was a ship if it was a you know a spaceship coming in or like a, a destroyer or you know an army you know you can respond to that you know how to respond to that but there are particular kinds of ways of attacking a society that there's no really good way to respond to. And in fact, the best way that you can respond sort of plays right into the problem. I think actually that really quickly, a quick aside, one of the things I was disappointed in the film was that, you know, they tried to give you a sense that there was going to, they were going to fight back. You know, you know uh, Sutherland says several times, you know, we'll beat them, we'll beat them. But there's never any sort of good faith offering on the part of the filmmakers as to how they're going to do that. You know, they, they, they never like find something that might be, oh, we found a weakness that they're going to exploit and then fail to do so. Like, I, I think that that would have upped the tension, would have upped the stakes if they had had some, an element like that in the story. So you could sort of, you know, red herring, it would make you believe that it might actually work out, but it's pretty clear going in that this isn't, this is gonna, this isn't gonna end well. It's either gonna be deus machina or they're uh, just gonna, they're, it's gonna be a bad ending, a pessimistic uh, ending. Uh, he did try to blow up one-tenth of like 0.1% of their pods, Garrett. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, no, uh, uh, face blindness. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, it is not a real condition, which is you know, at least tangentially sort of related, um, to, to, to the whole thing. Um, so there are people actually living in like invasion of the body snatchers right now. Like that's, yeah. they, they live with things that are similar to that. That is, I don't want to live in this world anymore, guys. That's <laughs> Jesus. Um, but to answer your question, Noah, um, I mean, I think for me, I mean, it's sort of, I take this sort of base pragmatist sort of thing about it. It, it. The key thing isn't, should I believe it or shouldn't I believe it? The key thing is, what do you expect me to do with this? 
If you're telling me that I need to pick up a gun and start shooting people because they're pod people, fuck no, I'm not going to do that. Not on the safe, not the, not the three people I trust most in the world. I'm not going to pick up a gun and start shooting people because they're pod people. Okay. But if you want me to say, put you in touch with the mayor, you know, which is actually what he ends up asking him. Yeah, I would do that. You know, I, I mean, I, I realize that I might burn my social capital with the mayor. I might create professional problems that I might be passing on this, this potentially ludicrous idea. But, you know, with three... But you would trust enough to actually do that. Yeah, to, 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 put, to put someone in touch with someone else I knew, someone, someone like the mayor. Yeah, I would trust them enough to do that. But I would be clear to the mayor, look, I'm not saying what they're telling you is true. I'm just saying that I think you need to hear them out because I know them, I trust them. Maybe they're crazy, but if so, we've got an epidemic of crazy going on. So maybe it's not pod people, but something fucking weird is going on and we need to start by paying attention to this. Uh, so the, yeah, so I think it's the wrong question to ask is do you or don't you believe them? The right question to ask is what are they asking you to do with this? And then does it pass the threshold for whether or not you think it's it's enough to do with that with it or not? That's fair. That's a good response. Yeah, I like actually, that. Uh, in the original 1950s version, that is precisely how it was dealt with. Um, they were all aware that the town was having an epidemic of people having some kind of thing that made them crazy to not believe that their family members were their family members. But the thing that really concerned the doctors who were looking at this, because they knew it as an epidemic that was happening to the townspeople, is that it lasted for only a couple of days, and then all of a sudden everything was fine. That's where the real concern came with the doctor, because the original main guy was a doctor, not a health inspector. And he was like, I am really concerned about these people's psychological well-being, because how could they all be under this delusion and then it fades? So he's trying to figure out what's wrong with these people, what the epidemic was. Is this some kind of cold or virus or something that, that could affect other people outside of their own town? So um, I thought that was really just ahead of its time in overthinking how we, the audience, might start to ask questions ourselves about this fantasy story. You know what I mean? That's probably where all of us rational people would go. Is like, oh, maybe they're just all delusional or all going crazy. We should look into that. So, um, yeah, that's, I think that they went right along with your thought process, Garrett, <laughs> you know? Definitely this, this movie made me really appreciate being a health inspector. I feel like they had so much power in the seventies. That's one of the things I was like, man, this guy walks around town. Like he's the cock of the walk, man. Like, he and just... he was doing parkour and shit, <laughs> like leaping all over the place. I'm like, dude, this, this could be a video game. I would play it too. So the parkour is actually probably because he he appears to be a vegetarian, right? The only time we eat, we see him eat, he's having like ginger and celery. Clearly, that's what it's got to be. Um, just to like jump in on one point though, <laughs> sorry that you were talking about Shara, um, that actually made me think of uh, of what you might um, refer to as kind of like a mass hysteria, right? So you know there there is actually this real thing that that can happen to people where there there will be this sort of this sort of group level, extremely uh, obsessive behavior or, or thinking or action. Um, I think, I mean, th this is probably, I mean, sociologists have studied this for a long time. I'm sure this is probably, this, this terminology has probably been around long enough for it to have been maybe an influence into the book. But, you know, one of the, one of the greatest examples of that is probably going to be the Salem witch trials where, I mean, yes, there's like a clear explanation as to now we know why, like maybe there were some hallucinations or something like that. But in a few cases, you know, that can balloon up to people killing other people because of ridiculous claims that there are witches. Um, but now, here's the thing, is that, that that really wasn't ridiculous back then. 
I mean, it's ridiculous to us today, but, you know, for much of European, much of Christian history, the idea of the belief in witches was sort of par for the course there. I mean, Salem witch trials were ugly, but it's nothing compared to what happened in Europe a couple of hundred years before, uh, you know, all the way up through, you know, the, um, the Spanish Inquisition, you know, uh, it's right there in the Bible, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. So in that context, it seems perfectly rational that, you know, someone, someone says that person's a witch, you know, if you were there, if I were there, the smartest, most rational people, had they had been, had that upbringing, that background, they would have believed that. That's totally fair. And I guess if you had had something like that in this movie, um, you know, maybe humanity would have had some sort of a defense, right? Because like, obviously in this case, the body snatchers would be the witches. Um, so maybe it's not such a bad thing after all. So, you know, I, I don't know how to, uh, to really weigh that out, whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, clearly, clearly it seems like a bad thing. Um, and yes, like maybe being rational, I don't know. I mean, that sort of clashes with what I would see as rational to a response or as a response to somebody coming up to me and saying that, well, you know, everyone in this town has been replaced by an alien. You know, I don't know. It just, it's, um, there's, there's some clashing going on there that I guess like in that time period, rationality would probably sort of be based largely on religious belief. Um, you know, gen if you, if you genuinely believe that set of beliefs, then yes, I mean, I suppose it would make sense to kill a witch. Um, but maybe if you don't believe in, you know, alien spores coming to the planet, it's not so rational to kill people because they're from like their, their alien spores. And I mean, again, it is not to, to beat the point home, but if, if, if a person really insisted on evidence, it seems like one of the things you can do is say, have you noticed the total lack of emotional affect in all these people around town? You know, don't you think that's something that needs to be accounted for? Isn't that at least, you know, strange? So on top of the, the testimony of three people, you also have this clear pattern of people losing their emotional capacities. And then you can always point out why the hell are the garbage men coming in the evening? Like why, what's happening here all night? This is different. With ashy black straw stuff always in the back, not garbage bags. <laughs> yeah, and I was kind of puzzled about that. Is why did there need to be this big conspiracy to cover up the, the remains of the people, right? I mean, it's like... Well, I think the movie really tries to, uh, tries to account for most of our expectations. So like, you know, when, when it creates a new pod person you you obviously it's part of the point of the plot that the pod person is is created you know in the same room or in the immediate vicinity so that you could conceivably wake up and see it and freak out and so something has to happen to your body after the pod person replaces it right your body and even if your body like crumbles to dust it's not just literally going to disappear even if it crumbles into some kind of you know, ashy substance, you're going to have to get rid of it. And so they, the, the movie sort of plays to our expectations, you know, in, in asking that. And honestly, I think it does a pretty good job of doing so. There's only one notable uh, scene where I would say that that's an exception. And that is that um, apparently they let Leonard Nimoy back to look for the body without actually going with him. And that, that was the element that I thought was the least, the single least believable bit in the movie is you've just seen this like crazy growing fetus body thing. You totally flipped out. Leonard Nimoy arrived and wants to take a look at it. And instead of leading him over, you're just like, it's in the third stall on the left. Go in here. We'll close the door here. Go check it out. And then he comes back and, you know, five minutes later and is like, there's nothing here. And then the windows open. And of course, you know, we, the audience realize he's a pod person and he obviously disposed of the evidence. Um, but, uh, but I was kind of disappointed that the movie didn't think to make the characters a little more skeptical there.
I also thought the cinematography in that scene was weird. That was a scene where, again, we had this high up shot looking at all the different sort of uh, uh, curtains and so forth. And like, you know, you, there, there's this, there's an important conversation going on and you can't see any of the actors' faces. You can't see their emotional reactions. That, you know, it was a very strange choice of shot. That, that That's that's perfect. Because I want to add, I think the, the reason um, for that uh, is just any attempt to explain the uh, disposing of the human corpses is a is a really distinctly seventies thing or an older horror movies thing. I'm noticing Antonio from the very first podcast sort of imprinted on me this idea that watch. He said, "Watch older when we do the older seventies movies. Watch for these specific things, right? Watch for the camera giving you more of a story in transitions." And this film has that, like you would not believe. So if we you know, take this film and go look at the one in 2002, 2003, I think with Nicole Kidman, I forget the year it was made, but, um, it, it, right? yeah. And, and, and you'll see things like when the camera is, um, showing you that characters have transitioned to another setting, it's just a jump cut. Whereas this film was the most, one of the most obvious differences is that you travel with the characters in this film. You travel with them in, in a state of one long transition between sequences from different settings. And I think that sort of cinematic thing is part of the explanation for why they even attempt to show you what happens to the human corpses. They want sufficient explanations they want you to be able I, I i this is this is in this i'm gonna i'm trying not to get on my soapbox here but this goes into one of my main criticisms with modern horror cinema today is that they don't do they don't do any real work for the most part and this is a generalization but there's a problem with horror movies today where they don't explain things between transitions they just kind of jump they jump from one scene to another and leave a couple questions in your head at least the 70s and 80s horror attempt to give you an explanation. Because if they didn't, we'd all be sitting here going, hey, what happened to the bodies? Do you ever feel like why? It didn't make sense to me, right? This film tried to give you an explanation. And I agree with Antonio. It did it in a way that was actually pretty unique. I mean, I don't think it was perfect. We can envision scenarios where it would be problematic. The film exploits a couple of those, like what happens when a character's sitting there and degrading and eventually turns into dust and all that, yada, yada, yada. There's problems with that. But at least it's an attempt at treating you like a rational moviegoer that's going to think, hey, what happened to that corpse? <laughs> I feel like we don't get that. I felt today. like it was a bit of a, an attempt at being humorous. Like, I could imagine a laugh track every time there was a garbage truck smashing the stuff. Like, ha, 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 ha. oh, you pod people. <laughs> like, every time I saw it, I kind of giggled. I was like, I don't represent a a contemporary concern for the process that is kind of lacking in modern cinema. There's there's a lot of concern in the earlier movies to show you the process. I think it's not just horror movies, it's movies in general. I've seen several critics comment this about how movies today are much more fast paced in no small part because audiences today lack the attention span and the patience. You know, they're watching their movies on their cell phones, they're half distracted, so the films have to keep grabbing you and re-grabbing your attention in order to keep you engaged. Um, and so but at the same time though, I think that, actually, that, that, that can be an advantage to modern films over the older films, because I, especially I think like the third act of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, I felt there was a whole lot of just go from point A to point B and then point B to point C and then point C to point D. And it's like, w w what is the objective here? You know, that where the characters are trying to get away. Okay. But there, there, there's no clear idea about what it is that they're trying to do. And again, and so back to my previous complaint. But it's panic. It's panic. I think that's the answer, Garrett. Is it's panic. That's the, that's what it wants you to see through giving you all that. Panic isn't plot. 
You know, I mean, again, it's, it's emotion and it's powerful. And again, it, it covers that well. But, you know. Oh, my I, God. He's a pod person. He's trying to take away our emotions. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, really, it's, I, I felt that it, they could have had their cake and eat it, too. You know, again, I felt that if there was a clear, like, objective for the characters other than just get away. You know, if they could get to this place and do this thing, they could start fighting back and they could find this person. Uh, you know, if, if there was, you know, something beyond just escape, that especially that final third act would have felt like it was actually going somewhere rather than just uh, uh, Donald Sutherland just running from shit. I don't feel I don't feel that would have been as scary though. I think part of the fear for this is that there is no there's you have nothing but just what do I do and you run in circles, like that's part of the appeal and and that's never more apparent in this film when they're all until when they're all in that apartment, um you know and that phone call comes in and they're all like and they look outside and they see the police and everything's kind of collapsing in on them, I I that that is what made it scary if they had an objective like and and I think you mentioned at the part where Donald Sutherland has something like a kind of objective where he goes and destroys all those pods. That was the least, um, the the thing I, I liked least about the film. But the thing yeah, I like, I, I yeah. don't want them to actually achieve the objective or even sort of necessarily get their hands on it. I just want them to talk about it, you know, to say, if we can just get to the island, then we can be safe there, you know, or if we can get to the the the, the, the headquarters, we can create a disease that will kill the population. You know, just, just so there's, the, the notion is there in their heads rather than just run here, run there, run here, run there. I actually think that this is uh, I actually think that this is a core element of the movie's plot though and that is precisely that the tragedy in this movie is that the thing that that is worth fighting to preserve which is individualism in this case you know clearly the message of the movie is individual is, is like an individualist versus collectivist kind of mentality you know the things that are worth preserving are the things that make you you your high emotions and your low emotions um, and and that and leveling them all out in the service of some overarching someone else's overarching plan is the ultimate horror, and so so the the you know hero heroism is individualism. The thing that's worth fighting to preserve is the individual, and yet it is the individual that is unable to prevail against the sheer organization and manpower of the collective, and that's the tragedy of it. Is it's un, it's fatally undermined by its own. By, by its own uniqueness. It, it is unable to uh, organize and coordinate and execute as effectively as the opposition. You know, that's, that's really interesting. And there's one scene that I think that, that abstracts that really nicely. And I was, I was hoping to have kind of a segue to sort of talk about this, but we do have that scene where it looks like they're in a party and uh, um, Jack and Matthew are sort of talking over each other, right? So uh, Donald Sutherland's character is on the phone trying to talk to the police, but Jeff Goldblum is there insisting on talking about his own intellectual concerns in his book and they're kind of like overlapping each other and it's chaotic and in the background you actually have this funhouse looking mirror that sort of distorts Jeff Goldblum's face and I think that's meant to portray that that's it's 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 meant to be sort of surreal in a way because they're taking that that staunch individualism and kind of like just showing you showing you its fatal flaw um so yeah I, I think that really plays into what you're saying there Antonio is and also like just just a fantastic scene just mind-blowing it was, it was so good I mean, can, can we want to sort of stop? And again, Shara mentioned again other films that have uh, and other stories which have sort of sort of taken a page from this. But it, it, it's worth. I'm going to do a little background research. There, there was a, a cluster of stories that came out around the same time as the original novel 
that sort of played off the same thing. Uh, you know, uh, 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 but I think the one that dated back the furthest, again, which might, might be arguably the progenitor, uh, is the uh, 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 John Campbell story, uh, uh, Who Goes There?, which was the, the foundation and the inspiration for The Thing from Outer Space, which later became The Thing. Um, I'm not sure if it was the first, but it's, it was the first story that I could find. That one came out in the 30s. Um, but then by the time you get to the 50s, yeah, you have that, you have invaders from Mars, uh, you know, you have, uh, 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 what was the other one? Yeah, there's a handful of other films that came out right literally within just a couple of years of each other, uh, all playing off this same theme. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I, at first I thought Invasion for the Body Snatchers was the first one and that all the others were stealing from it. But then when you actually look at the timeline, it's a little bit more crowded and confused. So it's hard to know exactly who got there first, if anyone. Um, and uh, yeah, it's 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 fascinating. We sort of you know, it's, it's such such a thing as an idea whose time has come, I suppose. And then the, uh, the early nineteen to uh, late nineteen fifties, this idea of people getting taken over, swapped out, controlled, seemed to really be something that the, there was a serious appetite for in the in the public. They were highly paranoid times, and I'm I'm sure that that played a significant role in it. And of course, it's also not uh, inconsequential that this was during the era where um, genetics became a big thing that was discussed widely on the national scene. Yeah, uh, I feel like this is truly an American film. Like, this embodies all that is America. And there was a really great animation that I believe was done by the guys who did South Park um, in Bowling for Columbine. And um, it was kind of their joking way of talking about America and like how we all think here. And like the way that we've, our American history has always come from paranoia. We're always paranoid about something. Something is scaring the shit out of us and we just need to shoot at it and make it go away. Um, and so this, this film I feel just completely embodies our culture of constant fear and constant worry about any possible thing to pop up and happen here. Um, so I, I felt I felt like it might go over some people's heads in other cultures. I don't know if it would, but I feel like it was a very American horror film. There, there's that classic book, The Paranoid Style in American Politics. Um, I can't remember who wrote it off the top of my head. Uh, Hofster, I think his name was, um, which, yes, definitely finds a lot of evidence in favor of that idea that sort of yeah, the defining characteristic of America is our paranoia. But I, uh, regarding the South Park thing, I actually think that it wasn't done by the South Park guys, and they were really pissed off, apparently, because you know, in the film, it's right after the interview with the South Park guys. And yeah, stylistically, it looks very much like South Park, but apparently the filmmakers got, had their own people do it and put it there without any kind of uh, thing saying that, that who it was by. And so the, the South Park guys felt like they, you know, that they sort of try to steal their bit and attribute it to them. Uh, so if that's true, I'm not entirely 100% sure it is, but I have heard that's the case, so. That's yeah. interesting, but I did still find the animation really accurate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The substance of the piece is definitely on point. This movie wouldn't have been as horrifying if those ultrasound noises weren't in it. Those ultrasound noises, man, that did something like basic to me. Noah's well, well, never having children now. Yeah, this. no, no, I, I was on, I was, yeah, I, I'll never be on the fence about it again after seeing this. Just hearing the ultrasound noises. Did the scream that they make? Oh, no, 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 not the scream they make. That's like the Banshee scream. Sherry does a really good uh, th uh, impersonation of that. But no, no, the um, when they're being, um, when the person is asleep and the pod thing is happening and the process is happening, it's the sound of an ultrasound. 
throughout the whole film. Um, and it's actually someone in the film's baby, I forget, like they took their ultrasound. They were like, hey, I got an ultrasound. Like it was one of the actors or someone on the staff basically had, like they had a recording of their ultrasound and they used it for the sound, um, in the, at least in the 78 version, um, for the noise that happens when, you should go back and listen to it, Garrett. It just, I mean, it's an ultrasound. It's like white, it's like a weird white noise. I mean, you know what an ultrasound sounds like, but like- it, No, but ah, the best ah. part about this is I was watching it while I was on a Skype call with Daniel. So he could not see what I was watching. He was playing his video games or whatever. So um, and that's how we hang out being so far apart. But all he can hear is these ultrasound noises <laughs> and all these weird, creepy noises. I think it was when he fell asleep outside that it was going for a good five minutes. It was just weird, creepy noises. And Daniel's like, what the hell are you watching? <laughs> like, he just couldn't take it anymore. He was like, what the fuck is that? How could that this be is, interesting? Uh, this is actually one of the things that I really enjoy about this movie. And one of the things that I think sets it apart qualitatively from a lot of other horror movies. And that is that the design of the movie is is kind of bipartite. It's it's there's there's an aspect of the movie where you know they just craft the set, they craft the the acting and the sequences and so on. But um, in the cinematography and the sound design, they are both quite deliberately and and specifically sort of ratcheted up in order to produce a, a sensation of disorientation. And this is particularly evident in the camera work. If you watch the camera work carefully, you will notice an, a, a heavy use of Dutch angles. There's a number of times when the camera rotates from a, from a, a skewed sideways position into a regular position. There's a number of times when the camera does 360s and 180s and various other kinds of really sweeping, uh, twisting movements to uh, disorientate the viewer. Um, there's a lot of framing of shots. Um, someone has already mentioned, I don't remember who, but someone already mentioned there's a shot where um, you can't even with the mud bass where there's a really, I think it was Garrett where there's a really high up shot and you can't even see the characters talking as the, as the shot is progressing. Um, there's a number of choices made at almost every point in the movie where, where they deliberately arrange the camera in some way. That's just a little off. That's just a little bit not correct as far as framing of the shot. And this produces that, that, feeling of pervasive disorientation during the movie. And it's honestly something that I wish more modern horror movies would do. Most modern horror movies are shot in a very film school kind of way. It's very, very direct by the book, you know, what, what's, what's the corporate officer going to want kind of shot, you know? Um, and there's not a whole lot of creativity in, in stringing shots together to set a tone. And you see this uh, often in like critiques of modern movies, they will uh, complain about how horribly edited they are. This is a really, really well edited movie as far as the cinematography goes. Two things I absolutely love about 70s horror movies. First off, the film stock. You know, you're gonna do that, 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 that sort of color saturation that you get in films like this one or Rosemary's Baby uh, or Don't Look Now. Um, you know, I just I love the the texture and feel of the film. And second is is the sound. You know, they they have this you know, all these a lot of Dario Argento's films are like this too, right? There there's just this pervasive soundtrack and, and pulsing background, which is just creepy as fuck. And yeah, I I think there's there have been films uh, who have tried to sort of copy the sound, and I think they modern films, but they don't do do it terribly well. But I would love to see a film done with 70s film stock again, a horror film done. You know, 
with budget. I'm not talking an indie film. I'm talking a, a big budget horror film that just that actually takes that original '70s film stock, or at least something that approximates it closely, and to, to recapture that texture. Because I just I love that so much. Just so to much. ask a question really quick. Um, I. I know the void wasn't a high budget or anything like that, but I know they at least tried really hard to kind of like go back to that kind of like practical effects thing. And I'm not, a, maybe I don't remember it correctly, but I'm wondering if that would be an example of that, you know, where I think it was created purposefully because of sentiments like what Garrett has just expressed, where there's something lost when you go from kind of like that old way of making horror movies to what we currently have now. Yeah, I, that's a that's actually a real. I was going to ask if anyone had an example of any film like that, and it, the void is probably the closest thing to an attempt to do that purposefully. I think, uh, especially with practical effects. Um, uh, but your your guys are right that the camera work on this, um, I it made me feel very frantic. Like it, it sort of enhanced the paranoia of the film, and a lot of the shots I thought were they just looked handheld almost, like um, like literally just a dude holding a camera running around. I got that vibe a couple places in the film. It just made everything all the more frantic, um, which I totally dug. Also, the uh, the cinematographer is just a creepy-ass dude in general. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the janitor that you see buffing the floor a couple times in the movie, that's the cinematographer. There are a ton of like little cameos. He is creepy as fuck then, because I was noticing him every time he popped up. I was like, you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about you. But I, I think there are a lot of good films that do try to go to that time period. I feel like Boogie Nights was one that attempted to try to, you know, really capture a, a space and time then. Um, but it, it is a hard thing to do. You know, you have to try to get the right cameras, the right people that have that same mindset from the 70s. It's a hard thing to pull off. Yeah, no, it's definitely not easy. Someone send this to Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi, your, your next task has been set for you. Drag Me to Hell, actually, might qualify, too, I think, in, in, at least not, not fully, but at least in that ballpark of trying to do that same kind of, of horror film. So, I, mean, I was going to say, it's a, little bit, it's a little bit early for the time period that you're probably looking for, Garrett, but honestly, Darkman has a lot of that same kind of look cinematographically, um, speaking of Sam Raimi movies. It's been a while since I've seen Darkman, but yeah, uh, Ian Neeson is a superhero who can not only take on people's faces, but also magically learns how to copy people's voices just by listening to them. That was, <laughs> that was a little, some, some weak writing right there on that one. But I, I, I remember that film and I enjoy that film. Yeah, I, if I had that ability, I would be a stand-up comic with it. I would be able to make millions, so. So let me throw this out here to you guys, see what you make of this, uh, if anything. Um, I, I, as, as I was watching it, something occurred to me that, that someone could interpret this film in an incredibly kind of racist way. Uh, especially again, there's there's that one scene where he's in the dry cleaner, and the again the the, uh, uh, the husband says you know that his wife isn't his wife. You know, there's some there's some sort of ethnic stereotypes going on there. But more broadly, I mean, you could take it this idea again, like like the Muslim invasion, right? You know that that, that these people who aren't us, they're not American. They're coming here and they're taking our jobs and they're they're taking our women and so forth. I, I personally don't find that that interpretation very compelling, but I can imagine someone reading it that way, and especially. Was the 1970s? It was, you know, I think probably not uncontroversial to say a more racist time, especially or the or the 50s version, even more so. Um, what, what do you guys think of that? That would underscore Antonio's Lovecraftian interpretation. Just going to throw that out there. I I don't think you're the only person who thought that because we had a recent movie that has a very similar kind of uh, trope with it called Get Out that came out, and I think that is his interpretation of that um, that whole thing. So. Um, I, I don't think you're the first person who thought of it that way. Yeah. 
that horror movies take ethnic stereotypes and use them as the other to scare people? Well, it is it is interesting to note about this movie that um, despite it being set in an era where having a black sidekick was the in thing. I don't know if you've noticed about this, about this, about like late seventies, early eighties movie and cinema, but it suddenly became, you know, after the passage of civil rights legislation and the ultimate victory of, of that sort of uh, legal battle, it suddenly became super cool to have black people in your, in your movies, but not as protagonist. They still, you still couldn't sell a black protagonist yet. And so it would, the black dude would be like the sidekick or like one of the dudes who ends up getting killed at some point in the movie. And you see this in a lot of like late 70s, early 80s movies. You see this in Alien, you see this in Predator. Um, those, are, those, those occur quite prominently to me. Um, and there's various other, um, especially action movies, um, where you can see this same sort of uh, uh, thing manifest. Um, and it's interesting because in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, of course, I I don't know. Is there, are there any like prominent black characters? I don't think so. And the only nope, the only Jeff uh, Goldblum and uh, what all I could think of was that Jeff Goldblum was like the sidekick character kind of guy in this care in this movie. And I thought of Independence Day, and I'm like, is this just his like? Is, he's always playing the same yeah. damn guy probably ever since that film. I don't know. But, and um, of course, the Chinese folks are uh, are inscrutable and depicted as you know fairly obvious stereotypes that were probably kind of offensive even to some people in 1978. Like it's pretty bad. Has anyone else noticed that apparently Jeff Goldblum is immortal? I think he really is a pod person, man. He he he's 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 got to be like what 65 something like that, and he looks just a little bit. He older is than gorgeous. He yeah. is gorgeous. Yeah, yeah he's a good looking dude. I I would I would I'm just saying. Jeff Goldblum, if you're watching this. Hey, you know, gun to my head, I wouldn't say no either, right? <laughs> okay, I have a question now. If, if, you guys are, if you guys are done with that piece, I have a question. This has bugged me, and I want an answer from you guys. Of all the songs that they could have played at the end, right, when Jeff Goldblum goes in, why is it Amazing Grace? I have a really, really esoteric probably completely inaccurate interpretation of why that is but i kind of want to know your thoughts that first. song all i could tell you is that song daniel was like okay i hear all these weird noises forever and then i hear amazing grace like what are you yeah, even ultrasound ultrasound amazing grace like if you just listen to the movie apparently without any visuals it is the weirdest fucking film i i'm not sure why they have it there but it it definitely was something Daniel was like, okay, this movie is officially the weirdest thing you've ever watched. It has to be. I just, I asked myself the question, like, why, like, of all, of all the, the music they could have played, it's the why? destruction of hope is what it represents. You know, the, the idea is that, that this is now salvation. You know, salvation is at hand, and then it dashes your hopes. You know, it, and, and again, this is the sort of Lovecraftian element where, you know, you, know, you hear the this, this strain of some, you know, familiar hymn and you, you know, are attracted to it and you go, ah, oh, you know, now, now all my work is going to pay off in some meaningful way. And then as you watch, you realize that it's just another tendril of the great old one reaching over to you and the whine of the bagpipes turns into a maddened screech, you know? And then you're like, ah! 
so I mean, can, can we sort of flip that upside down though, right? Could it, could it be a quasi sort of critique of religion, this whole idea, you know, I mean, after all, you know, in sort of many standard traditional afterlife stories, when you go there, you do sort of become one with God and with everything else, right? You do sort of lose your individuality and you do become assimilated in this Borg-esque fashion. Um, I mean, again, I'm shooting from the hip on that one. I hadn't given, given any deep thought to it, but you know, hearing you- I like that. That's interesting. Actually, uh, that's, that goes into a big part of this film for me. Um, on a personal note, um, I feel like when it comes to our skeptic community that we've hung around in for years, um, there's this idea that we all need to be very rational, logical, skeptical of everything. Uh, certain emotions aren't allowed. Quit putting emotional responses in any of your arguments. And it's this very robot kind of viewpoint. And we run into this with the original Star Trek with Leonard Nimoy <laughs> being a character who uh, was just kind of had none of those human emotions but struggled with a bit of them. He has a little bit of humanity in him. Um, you even see that in the modern Star Trek movies that have come out as of late. But um, there's like this struggle of um, needing to figure out how you become that rational person but also try not to be too emotional about everything. In our circles, it's like emotion is evil almost. Like you're not allowed to have any kind of emotional response to stuff. So when I'm watching this, I'm like, I feel like this is the attack that I'm constantly under. Everybody will call me emotional about certain things. And I'm like, I think my emotions are what makes me human. And I, I kind of want to hold on to that shit, dude. Like quit telling me to stop having emotions. I have them. And Richard so Dawkins is a pod person. We just nailed it. This is... No, yeah. Sam Harris is the pod person, man. He's the Zen master, right? Oh. He's the guy who never gets upset about anything. Dawkins can get childish and, and churlish quite yeah. a lot. No, Harris. That's totally true. Harris is, is, the, is the Zen master, man. He's the one who never gets upset. See, this is how I know I'm not a pod person, because anytime anyone says anything about Sam Harris, I immediately feel uh, all-encompassing rage. <laughs> 100%. So, well, actually, Sharon, since you bring that up, let, let me sort of take that, try to sort of play devil's advocate here and take that step further. What... Why exactly are we so convinced that the pod people are the bad guys, right? I mean... That's true, but that's how they paint themselves. I mean, they're, they're going to take away your hate. They're going to take away your fear. They're right. going to take away any that's of the problems. But it also takes away love and all of the things that really just makes us connected as a society. If all that we're connected with is like groupthink and right. nothing else is leading us to be connected, that is ultimate horror to me like, and like I, said, I, I, God. I agree with you here but I'm, I'm trying to play devil's advocate because i do think it's an interesting angle, angle to consider right i mean maybe it would be worth it to give up love if you get rid of all the pain and the heartbreak that comes along with rejection and lost love and the death of people that you loved you know if we could have world peace if we could explore the universe together right which that, that that's something that's kind of awesome um you know it it, it, it takes away is this a greater good argument then like is, is sign it me up best? Sign yeah, me up. I guess you could make it make, make it in those terms. I wasn't quite thinking in those terms, but uh, you know, I mean, it, it's the, yeah, emotions are a big part of us. That's true, but they're not all of us. You know, there is a lot more to us besides these sort of powerful heightened emotions. We have other things that make life worthwhile, and if the uh, the aliens could offer us those things in abundance, maybe it actually is worth sacrificing. Should it be a choice then, and not be forced on us? Yeah, no, that's that, that's a fair point, right? Um, but uh, we talk, keep talking about assimilation, but again, there, there's a difference between the pod people and the Borg, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the Borg, everything, everyone sort of becomes one. But the, the, in, in Vision of the Body Slashers, people are still individuals. 
they're, they're connected to one another in a way that human beings aren't. But, you know, they, they say we still have our memories. We still have, you know, our, our sort of our personality. It's just sort of subdued in, in, uh, in lieu of these connections to, to the rest of the species. Um, so, yeah, I mean, peace, harmony, connection. These things are, are, are valuable, too. These things are human values. Um, well, I don't think that's honestly too much of a, um, a devil's advocate argument, to be honest. I mean, it, it does make a lot of sense. And I think the way that we can sort of connect that early SICAN um, is to go back to that point when uh, somebody somebody mentioned that this is sort of uniquely American in horror. And, you know, as as we know, uh, horror movies are really good about being a mirror, right? Too, they, they really show you things about yourself based on how you react and what you're afraid of. And so something I think that is in incredibly ironic about sort of uh, the unique aspect of being an American as it relates to sort of the human condition is yes, like we, we definitely emphasize individualism. We, we exonerate that myth of the, the exceptional individual, but we also have that strong collectivistic element too. And that sort of goes back to the amazing grace thing with religion. You know, yes, they're using that song that's traditionally played at funerals to sort of usher in the death of humanity and what more collectivistic element of American life is there than our, our very sort of conservative religious roots, right? So, I mean, it's definitely there and it, it, it might sort of depend on on what you focus on. Now, I'm not going to say that, you know, this sort of development in particular of making everyone a pod person makes us collectivistic in the same way, but it's certainly making us collectivistic in a different way, which is why I kind of think that also that if, if you don't look at this as a horror film, if, if you try to take yourself out of that perspective and look at it maybe from a different perspective, you're seeing it as, as sort of, a small group of people fighting against what is ultimately progress. And obviously, you know, progress being what progress is, there really is no choice in, in that matter either. You know, humanity is going to change. It's going to move forward and there's really nothing you can do about it. You know, I, I've been sitting here trying to think, is there any version of this story in which it's not told as, you know, it's a terrible thing. And I realize the only one I can think of off the top of my head at least is that Rick and Morty episode where they have that whole sort of collective consciousness sort of thing. It's like, you know, it, it's, it's, they're clearly playing off this idea that when you assimilate species, it's supposed to be horrifying and they make it mundane. You know, they make it just, this is the way this species works. And yeah, it might seem horrifying to the people that they occupy, but for them, it's just life. It's just how life goes on. It, it isn't taken to the same extreme, but there's a similar subtext at the end of the movie Equilibrium, which I have an absurd like for, despite the fact that it's not a terribly good movie. Oh, it's a great movie. Um, I love that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, right? It is actually, it is, it's actually a pretty good movie. Um, it, it's underrated. Um, and one of, the, one of the interesting things about the end of Equilibrium is that the, the conceit is that humanity suppresses its emotions. It's, it basically voluntarily makes itself invasion of the body snatchers, you know? It, you voluntarily inject yourself three times a day with this drug that suppresses the highs and lows of your emotions and makes you this kind of even-tempered individual. And it creates this extremely collectivist, extremely conformist society where um, art is actually destroyed as, you know, uh, something that triggers subversion. And so, um, but at the end of the movie, um, one of the things is that that they they kind of make the point that for most people, they should be allowed to experience the highs and lows of emotion. But there are some people who need to be able to check that, to check those highs and lows in order to be able to protect the rest from the excesses of their emotion. The balance is not to just suppress everyone, but to just have a few people that are well-placed and can take care of the, any problems if they arise you know, self-policing as opposed to self-suppression. Well, you guys are uh, definitely living up to uh, 
a little bit of the viewpoint from the 50s version, which was that the, the pod people, the uh, emotionlessness uh, would lead to the end of faith. And you guys have fully convinced me that that would be something that would drop off along with some other uh, aspects of uh, what, we, what we do, um, probably more as hobbies or as uh, ways of connecting that we wouldn't need if we were pod people. Um, it would free up more time to put towards space and time and traveling through all these different things. I don't know. I, it could it could mean we go further. But um, the main thing that was really interesting with the 70s version was that they actually talked about how that was how we already evolved. That the aliens already have come and taken the apes and evolved us to the, what we are now. And this is the next part of our evolution, and that our evolution has been controlled by the aliens throughout time. That was a really interesting uh, twist, I thought, that, that they threw in there. And, um, and it goes along with a lot of people's ideas that aliens help build the pyramids and aliens help do this. And I guess technically, yeah, it was us, but they, they evolved us. So. Yeah, I mean, in the film, that was speculation of one of the characters' parts. And again, it, it fit very well with the kind of, again, San Francisco ethos of sort of the, you know, again, this sort of out there fringy type stuff. I might have liked that better if it wasn't just speculation. If the aliens had said that, then I would have had more authority. But, you know, it, because it came from a character, humanized speculation, I sort of wrote it off as, ah, oh, that's just a bunch of hippy-dippy, new wavy bullshit. But... Um, Back to the theme, again, reminding ourselves that this is 1970s, it's still height of the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union are pointing nuclear weapons at each other, and had things gone slightly differently, we could have eliminated all life on this planet. The aliens are saving us from that, right? I mean, we, we become unified. And again, and if, you know, if communism had conquered the world, right, again, that, you know, that would have been terrible in many ways, but at least it would have ended the, you know, the threat of nuclear war. So it, running with the McCarthyist theme from earlier, you, you, you could make the case that, uh, you know, what, what matters isn't so much that, uh, uh, that humanity and our precious individuality and all our emotions, because, yeah, our emotions cause genocide, right? You know, uh, this is the end of genocide. You know, there's no more genocide. There's no more war after this. I am about to stop this broadcast because Garrett is clearly a pod person. I mean, he is making a case that is uncomfortable. I don't. Yeah, I, but I, I actually agree that there wouldn't be genocide, but I definitely think there would be forms of eugenics that would be really fucked up. I yeah. really do think that would be part of the pod people. I mean, we can't, I'm speculating, obviously, but it just seems so obvious. If and there's slavery, right? I mean, the whole thing is a system of slavery. Right. So, yeah, you know, you're getting rid of genocide, but by universalizing slavery. There's also kind of an, an potential analogy to, I guess, imperialism here in that, you know, it, it, as was mentioned before, you know, we sort of evolved up from apes, right? And so start to sort of play on this theme in, in reading the movie, um, there's a context in which you can see it as um, when when you know everything everything in the movie is is a reflection of us in some way shape or form ultimately even the aliens just by the nature of, of narrative work and so what do the aliens represent in us of course is the question and I think what the aliens represent in us is the tendency to you know as as the aliens drift through space alone and you know off cast off their dying world. And, and their only concern is basically self-preservation. And so they just happen to drift through space, they land on Earth, and it's ripe for the picking, and they're just going to eat everybody. They're just going to consume everything and make it their own, make it their own home. And it doesn't matter that the, the people that they are you know, attacking are not given any choice in the matter. They are simply 
subsumed into the grand civilizational project that these aliens have decided to embark on. And so there's there's definitely an aspect of a sort of a critique of imperialism where there's this there's this, you know, ideology, you know, one, one might even, you know, take a sort of Marxist interpretation and say, you know, the capitalist ideology that is that that just consumes people and makes them part of its system and enslaves them, you know, where to the point where they feel like they're willing participants in the system, even though they were originally not. Um, and then it just keeps consuming them without any regard for the personality of the other until it has completed its civilizational project. In the book, apparently, there actually is a line in which one of the aliens says, we're just doing the same thing humans do. We're moving into a new environment, we're exploiting its resources, we're using them up, and then when we're done, we'll move on to the next one. Um, and you know, it's like, yeah, that's that, that's actually pretty cutting right there. You know, it's 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 this maybe maybe these things actually are more human than we let through comfortable admitting. Well, the interesting thing about the film when it was first interpreted by people, sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you, Ben. I'll let you go next. I'm sorry. Um, is that uh, apparently when people watch it, depending on what their political bend is, they automatically put the pod people as whatever the opposite of their political view is. That's a lot of people's interpretations when they watch it. They're like, oh, the pod people are obviously Republicans or they're obviously liberals. Um, and I find that interesting that everybody politicizes the pod people. And, and uh, does that mean that you're a pod person in a way in your mind think? Because you're, you're in the group think world. Like, Ooh, I like that. That's very meta. I yeah, like that. That is good. And, and I, I, I want to take that because it comes back again. Uh, I think it was Antonio who's talking about uh, horror as a mirror. Um, there's a great line from Ray Bradbury, which I'm sadly going to butcher. He's talking about science fiction, but I think it can work for horror too. Is that uh, the, the purpose of the mirror is not to reflect back yourself. The purpose of the mirror is to reflect back over your shoulder to see the thing that you cannot face. And then like Perseus attack, uh, attacking Medusa, reach over your shoulder with the sword to cut the head off the, off the Gorgon. Um, and, and then that ties into, again, a great uh, Brecht, Bertolt Brecht quote, uh, uh, art is not a mirror, art is a hammer. And, you know, especially with science fiction and, and also with horror, I think, you know, it's, it, it, the purpose of it isn't just to entertain or to amuse. The purpose is to, it, it is to somehow change us, to scar us, um, to, to, to make us never go back in the water because God damn it, that shark's out there, right? You know, it, 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 when, when, when art can have that kind of effect on you in a way that I think horror does better than a lot of other things or on the world, in the, which science fiction is more for, for the politics, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a real testimony to the power of, you know, the written word or the moving image, spoken word, say, pick, pick your format. Uh, uh, to, to, to transform our view of ourselves, our view of the world, um, uh, our view of each other, right? You know, that they're the pod people, right? They're the, they're the enemies. You know, we start othering people like that. Um, you know, if, if, the, if, the, uh, if the mirror is put over our shoulder rather than in our face, maybe we will actually see something that we, uh, we'll see the, see the real danger as it were. That's wild. That's, that's awesome. Uh, and speaking about the, the the political thing too, really quick, just um, just to go back there, there was one scene actually where again Donald Sutherland's character is talking about all those different elements that might come into a person's life where you would feel like they've completely changed. And he explicitly, the very last thing that he says is like, well, maybe they became a Republican. Um, you know, I just I just want to throw that. Obviously, it's San Francisco, but just to throw that out there, I thought that was absolutely hilarious. Um, but one question I, I really wanted to ask to go back to 
to what you said, Garrett, is about the slavery thing. So what is it? I, I might disagree with that a little bit, but I, I think I need your explanation or at least your elaboration. What makes this full on like slavery? But what was um, what were you getting at with that piece exactly? Well, it's something of an inference, but you know, you'll notice that the second that they become pod people, every single uh, person starts serving the pod people, right? They, they all they all point out when there's a there's a uh, an intruder in their midst. They all run after the human being once they're discovered. They all are working on sp spreading the pods, they, so that they all have this unity of purpose, and that's something which you don't find in you know individualistic societies where where people are free, right? People will choose to do different things. But all we see in the film is that you know, once they're assimilated, once they become one, they uh, they have this unity of purpose, and that to me implies some kind of slavery or brainwashing or control that strips away the ability to choose otherwise. Okay, so unity of purpose. All right. Um, so so one thing that I'm, I'm wondering here, especially as it goes back to kind of what actually happens when a person gets quote unquote assimilated. So we do have where they talk about, obviously this is where Leonard Nimoy comes in and he's giving them the sedative and they're like, you know, what's gonna happen because they've, they've pretty much, I guess, accepted their fate at this point. They just wanna know what the experience is going to be like. But there is a preservation, or at least they say this, you know, maybe it's just one of those things where they're trying to placate the victim, but they're saying that there is a preservation of memory, of mind, and you know, it's, it's essentially that you're just sort of losing those pieces of you that make you um, unpredictable, irrational, maybe destructive, and that you're just sort of evolving as a person. Now, obviously that's sort of contradicted by the point, the point that Leonard Nimoy actually seems to understand what the will of the, the spore is. So he has their history, he knows what their motivation is, right? So there's some sort of addition that goes on there, but I'm not entirely sure if we could really call that slavery just because they're acting in a collective interest. Yeah, no, there has to be some preservation because they they are able to pretend, right? I mean, they're able to act as if they're still human. So the, the memories and so forth can't all be gone. Otherwise, it would have been obvious from the get-go who is a pod person and who isn't. So the memories have to be there. Some sense of the relationships have to be there. But obviously, the, the emotional affect is gone. Um, so, yeah, it can't be a total obliteration. Uh, that, it, that, that can't just be a lie. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Maybe slavery is the wrong word, but... Um, there doesn't there's definitely an element of um, of moral erosion here as well because um, it, you know early in the movie the pod people are shown chasing a guy down and killing him without compunction and presumably these aren't people who would be otherwise disposed to have done that. No, it's and, not, that's not clear. That's not clear. I mean, again, we we don't see what happens, but I, I was under the impression that the guy got hit by a car. He was running away and got hit by a car. Yeah, but I think the implication was that he was done in, you know, to in order to keep him from spreading uh, nervousness about what was going on here. Well, that was also a throwback to the 50s version. So the end of the 50s version had a guy doing that. The main doctor character is in traffic screaming at the cars to stop because he's trying to tell them that what happened in Santa Mira is coming to the big city because it was happening in a small town beforehand. And so he's trying to tell everybody, and there's a famous line, the, the most famous line from the original version is like when he points at the camera, at us, the audience, and says, you're next. And it, your time is near. And he's like freaking out. And you're like, oh, shit, this is really happening. We better fucking prepare. So, and then they, it was kind of a throwback to the 50s version. Um, but I think they wanted to throw in that curveball at the end and let you know we're fucked by having him die. They're like, no, 
He didn't get to go talk to the cops and stop the pod people. It made it to the city. It made it to San Francisco. Watch how this like goes down, and you're like, oh shit, they're go they're getting real in the seventies. <laughs> like, <laughs> so um, that's at least that's the way I took it. It it was definitely a, a seemed like a throwback. Yeah, my understanding was the the fellow, and I, I may be wrong about this, Shara. You're probably going to have the answer to this. Um, the the fellow who knocks on the window, uh, I think, is the same fellow who gets uh, uh, gets killed. They did make the, a cameo, yeah. Yeah, that's the main <laughs> dude from the '50s version. Uh, yeah, that's and, the main actor. Uh, and I think that's so important that cameo was there. It, it's kind of like how they the reason why they say the Ghostbusters movie like didn't really go that well. You want to have the cameos that helps, like, say, okay, we're we're passing the gauntlet, but you also kind of want it to to even if it's going to be its own thing, you want it to kind of um, be true to whatever the original was. Um, this was trying to do the cameo thing to pass the gauntlet, and I think they did an okay job of saying, with him dying, motherfuckers, this is different. It's a little different. So we're, we're letting you know that this went to a weird place. So I thought that was really, really clever by whoever made this film. I don't, I, I'm not sure. You guys might know who. Uh, whoever made the 70s version, that was a great way of of remaking a movie um passing the gauntlet in that way lets everybody know that the creative people behind it have it and say yeah we're accepting of this and how it's going to take a different turn in terms of i was just going to say the director of this was actually uh, philip kaufman just to throw that out there and i feel like a lot of people sort of attribute that as the reason why this version in particular sort of stands up over the 50s version as well as all of the other remakes what else did he do what were some of his other films no, sorry there, there were a number of famous things i'm not like super into this director in particular but just in reading some of the reviews it felt like a lot of praise was sort of uh, awarded to him for this um maybe some of the other people like in, in the group might know a little bit more about like his history in particular he is sort of famous but um definitely in reading kind of like some of the reviews they really threw it to him as being sort of his achievement mm -hmm. huh, that's interesting and then also also the uh the director of the original uh, 50s version i believe is the taxi driver in the 70s version um and um I, I guess during i read something about during that scene where he's driving um, he actually was in that scene driving the director uh, the 50s version, who's the taxi driver in the 70s version, is actually driving uh, in New York City during the scene where Donald Sutherland and I think it's Nancy Cartwright, uh, the, one of the other ladies is in the back seat with him. And uh, was he was actually, like, during the filming, was actually driving around New York City and um, didn't have his glasses. Like, he was, he can't see. And so the nervousness that you see from Don, Donald Sutherland that they filmed and they captured was, like, legitimate nervousness. Like, he didn't have his vision, and so he was driving without his glasses, and they were scared, and so they actually captured part of it. It's in the film, which is kind of cool. Okay, uh, this dude actually apparently uh, wrote Indiana Jones. Uh, Kaufman did? Yeah, yeah uh, I'm looking at all of the stuff. No it's shit. all the Indiana Jones shit, so that's probably what he's most famous for. Wow. It's a hell of a yeah. thing to be famous for. Wow. Yeah, so, I yeah, that's that's um, pretty cool. To switch gears a little bit, there was an interesting juxtaposition in the movie that... Um, I wasn't really sure what to make of, and I would really like to get you guys' feedback on what you think it represents. And that is that um, there's a theme in the movie of, of sort of, you know, accusation, right? The, the pod people are um, following, you know, try, trying to figure out who the real people are still and, like, you know, accuse them, you know, with the whole, ah thing and all that. 
Um, that was well I do done. That, that I do that way well better done. than you. No, I, I am the I am the best at that. <laughs> yeah. We should all do it at the same time. Just every single one of us just <laughs> except, except for Noah. Like Noah just sits there like he's the one being screamed at, right? We just do a screen cap, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to, the key is to inhale and make your throat weird. Um, but anyway, the the <laughs> sorry. You have more experience with that than me. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Antonio. We hijacked this movie right. in that in that um, both sides are trying to out each other. I don't know if any of you picked up on this, but both sides are trying to expose one another. The aliens are trying to figure out who the regular people are and and you know chase them down and subdue them, and the regular folks are trying to figure out who the aliens are and expose them and make sure that they can subdue them. And so it's actually, it's actually, um, it's not, you know, the aliens hunting the, the people or the people hunting the aliens per se. It's a mutual exercise. They're both trying to expose one another. Yeah. Um, the, the great thing is the, with, with the ending scene, um, it, it, it's, there's a, something that happens there for me with Jeff Goldblum's wife. Um, I, what, I don't know what the character's name is, sorry, but I, it, there was a thing that popped up in my head. There are a couple of movies that stand out to me because I feel like there's a whole other movie that can be made on another character's, like, side quest, you know what I mean? And I feel like her version of what happened during these events would have been a fantastic movie as well, you know? So, um, I, I really like that element of it where, um, you feel like there could be another story, like, you know what, the video game Resident Evil where there was actually two side stories you could like play as the guy or the girl and you're going on a completely different quest um, and so when I when I got to the end of that I was like okay now where's her version <laughs> I want to follow her you can Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead that shit man you can just write your own version to answer your question Antonio um, that's interesting right because it, it makes sense in the the, the human the, the patently human context to have accusation and to have elements of being accusatory between people, even in the same group. But it's a little weird to do that from the perspective of the pod people, right? Um, that's kind of weird to me. I mean, is it really like a, is it really uh, conformist or is it really non-emotional to be accusatory to the degree? I mean, is it just tra a transition until they finally get everyone being pod people and then it, it stops? Is it just like, is it that? Or you know what I mean? Like, um, it seems inherently human to, to have that kind of embedded sort of uh, accusatory framework from which you, you, it, you know, sort of everything subsists. I mean, that it's being a human, that's, that's, a, that's a, a fundamental feature of being, a, of being distinctly human, I think. So like, why is it just part of the time that they Maybe, do it? Is it just it to get everyone of, pod people? You know, I, I think again, it's sort of trying to put, hold a mirror up to us and show that we are kind of the pod people in, in some sense. Mm -hmm. And you know, because obviously the pod people care about some things they do react with a violent kind of emotion towards some particular things there's there's kind of yeah. a lie to when they say that you know we take away hate and love and blah blah, blah. they'll absolutely flip out and chase you down um at, at the drop of a hat you know with very little provocation and um and so the question is what triggers that and in this case it's the other in the midst but what triggers the humans flipping out to the same degree it's the other in the midst and so they're they're kind of both they're kind of just alternate sides of the same coin. Well, well, I think what triggers the the pod people is emotion, because they said they could walk amongst them as long as they didn't show any emotion, which was what made me mad at that chick so many times. She's like, Aah! and I'm like, 
Dude, that's the one thing you're not supposed to do. Like, calm down. What the fuck was up with the dog with the human face? Amazing Wait, scene. So Amazing. What? what? But this wasn't explained. You were talking earlier about how they want to explain stuff so it'll make sense. Where the hell? What was that about? No, there is. There's an explanation. Uh, so apparently that was the product of, um, uh, what's this? Uh, Kicking the pod? Walking into the, uh, yeah, he's, he's, he's walking into the health department or whatever it is. And he like, he's walking by those people laying on the ground and he kicks the pod and damages a little bit. So that pod was absorbing, you know, this one person that he knew, but the dog was also there. So like in that action, he kind of like messed up the process. And that's why there was that weird hybrid. Okay. Plus dogs are man's best friend, Garrett. I yeah, mean, it's no, that close. makes a lot more sense now, yeah. Ben. Thank you for that. No, yeah. I thought he saved that guy, and I was like, he can keep playing his banjo. I'm so happy. And then he came out as a dog person, and there's a banjo playing while he's running. And I'm like, okay, how is the banjo playing? What the fuck is going on here? It was weird. It was. This is why that film is superior, because... It has its weird fucked up parts that you're just like, I don't need an explanation. I don't need to overthink this. That was fucked up. That's all that needs to be said. Now that you do and mention that, I remember being like, you know, I didn't think like he crushed the pod and like saved that guy. I, it seemed like, oh, let, let's let's save this guy. Oh, fuck him. Let's, keep, let's just walk on. Like, you know, it's, it's like, wait a minute. You really could have helped him out. You could have just like, you know, picked him up and carried him with you a little bit. Like that, like you did with all the other human beings that you encountered. Instead, they stop. They notice that he's being taken over. And then they they kick the pod and then walk on. It's like, wow, that was kind of fucking weak. You know, one of the one of the other iconic scenes that really stuck out for me in this film was when, and I, we can't end this podcast without talking about it, is when Donald Sutherland um, killed his pod version of himself. Um, that was super, I mean, first off, how in the name of God is this PG when he's like bashing his brains in? And actually I read somewhere online that Stephen King, um, this scene stuck out to Stephen King when he watched the film as being like unbelievably brutal. One of the most brutal scenes he's ever seen in a film. And I'm like, dude, this is a PG rating. Not only that, but we got boobs. The only, the only PG film I've ever seen with boobs, like legit boobs. I saw, I saw those boobs and I was like, wait, I- Masterpiece, Where Antonio. am I? Masterpiece. You picked a masterpiece. <laughs> Are, are we sure this is PG? Because you're right. I'm pretty sure that the MPA yeah, had no, it's PG. It's a PG. It got a PG rating. Yep. This is why we got to love the 70s. <laughs> you know? Beautiful. God. Yeah, it kind of makes me wonder if today we're possibly even a little bit more conservative than they were in the 70s. It's kind of interesting what, what turn we're sort of taking as a nation. I don't know. Um, but yeah, just just about that scene in particular, there's, there's one other sort of like take on the film that I, I wanted to kind of bring it up and and it keeps coming up in every film, so maybe I can just make every every film about Nietzsche. But okay, so we were talking about progress just a little bit here, right? So you know, we can definitely think of this being a mass hysteria about progress and like you know things are changing, and everyone who is kind of like in the old way of thinking doesn't want things to change. Um, so you have this individual who comes up on himself and is forced to destroy himself, and I kind of want to take that as analogy of of changing from man to overman just a little bit, like you know that you, you've got to cut that rope and kind of move forward. Um, you know, obviously this is sort of the inversion of that a little bit, but just to, just to throw that piece out there, that's, that's kind of what I thought of when I saw that. Well, if we're going to talk nature, you know, I think this, the standard interpretation of nature, at least, would, would, would absolutely rebel against what I was saying earlier about how it might be a better world in which there's no pain and no war and stuff like that. You know, for, for nature, you know, what makes us best comes from that kind of conflict. You know, the pain, the suffering, the violence, that's what makes us the most human. That's when we rise above. Um, so the idea of, you know, you know, it, it's a sort of, you, 
should I call it a greater good thing? Uh, 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 is this idea that you know we can? And Nietzsche was totally opposed to utilitarian sorts of you know uh, uh, doing away with pain and suffering. So you know that's that's yeah. Well, yeah, I feel like I feel like the I, I feel like the true Nietzschean would use this opportunity as like a catalyst to make the overman happen. Like the fact that most people would be conforming in this way would be like the stepping stone for the overman to come about. Not not through the conformity of like the pod people, but using it as a catalyst to like to kind of like just as the thing to step on everybody. Like, oh yeah, like this they're all turning even more so into those cows, and now I can step upon them. Like that's I feel like that would be the Nietzschean angle to this. Um, I'm sorry. I, I, oh, sorry I, came a, I came across a black and white picture actually uh, back uh, behind the scenes of uh, uh, Donald Sutherland laying his head on the mannequin copy of himself. You know, it's covered in all the sort of the, the, the tendrils and stuff like that. And it's it's on the one hand, it's kind of a beautiful picture, and it's kind of neat to see it backstage. On the other hand, it's creepy as fuck because the mannequin looks pretty spot on, man. The effects in this this film were great. They were absolutely fantastic. Uh, the growing of the flower, um, the birthing of their new selves. But that actually leads me to an interesting query. Does this mean they get to live forever or in some form like live longer than us humans? Like are they are they able to live longer? Or when you you know, when some old people die in their sleep, like would would a new you be birthed and be able to live longer? Like do we age anymore after we've become pod people? Do we like get wrinkles and stuff? Is that still part of who we are? Is it like how you answer that question would make me change my mind whether I would want to be a pod person or not? Seriously, that's an important I was, question. I was just going to ask that of Shara actually is that if that were the case, if you stopped aging altogether once you become a pod person, would this still be a horror or would you be like, yeah, that's not so bad? That's a good trade. I'll do it. I don't know. For me, like, um, I'm fine with dying. I'm, I'm ready to die when I need to die. That's just kind of the person I am when I hear vampire stories. I think that that is the ultimate, like, fuck you to a person is to make them live forever. When I see what Wolverine deals with on his daily basis of trying to die and can't, like, I think of Groundhog's Day, him continuously trying to commit suicide and it doesn't happen. I'm like, I, I'm good. I don't need to live forever. That's not yeah. something I want. I totally agree. Immortality is a curse. So, so Antonio's got to leave soon. So before Antonio, before you go, I want you to wrap up your thoughts on this film and score it. Just give me, give me your two minute. This is why it's an awesome film. Here's what I score it before you head out. And we'll continue to talk about the film you selected because clearly you select the best fucking films. This is ridiculous. We're just going to keep going backwards in time, 78, 73. And then in two weeks, we're doing the seventh seal, 1958. So we're just going to keep going backwards. The, the more backwards we go, the better the film seem to be getting. Anyway, go. Give me your give me your final thoughts on this film. <laughs> wait, till you hit for me. The old, the, wait till you hit my recommendations from Georges Méliès. Anyway, <laughs> uh, this movie is one is a really great horror film. It's one of the earliest movies, uh, horror movies that I remember seeing. I probably saw it when I was like six or seven years old, and I only saw the second half of it. So I had absolutely no idea what was going on in this movie. Um crazy, crazy experience stuck with me a lot. Um, but really, you know, as you guys have probably realized by now, one of the things that the, the thing that that I consider to be a horror movie is something that is disquieting that keeps you thinking about it and wondering about it after after the movie and sticks with you. And I think in a in a real sense, you know, in, in both a, a literary and kind of an actual like, you know, mucus sense, this movie sticks with you. Um, 
it's uh, deeply unsettling from beginning to end in terms of the plot and its implications. As we've discussed, you know, there's a that there's a moral ambiguity to the story where maybe the aliens aren't the bad guys and they're just icky, and and that tells us something about the darkness in ourselves, the the ickiness inside ourselves. Um, it's wonderfully shot. It's the the camera work is very unsettling and the framing is very interesting in every single scene. Every single scene has something interesting going on in it in the camera work. The uh, sound design is excellent. The sound track uh, is excellent. Uh, definitely suits the theme of the film. The performances are all amazing. It's an all-star cast, blah, blah, blah. Um, and just from beginning to end, it takes you on this journey into in an increasing paranoia and increasing ickiness. And, you know, the, I, I have to emphasize, I really appreciate the fact that the movie does not have a happy ending. This is a, this is a contrast to the first movie where there is hope. And at the end of this movie, there is not. And I think it takes courage for a major motion picture to end on a note of everybody is just fucked. Like even, even a very bleak movie like The Witch, which we talked about recently, ends on a note where you could look at one of the characters and go, well, maybe she's making out okay in the end. Um, no such element here. It is, it is a tragedy in the purest sense. And because of that purity, uh, it, it is a classic. It's just great from beginning to end. It's all the elements of it are very good. There's a couple, you know, cheesy elements that are common to the era that that are forgivable in it, um, but do drag it down a little and do prevent it from aging a little. So I would give it an eight out of ten overall. Um, it's it's absolutely still a must see. It's not a ten out of ten because it, you know, like I said, it just hasn't completely aged a hundred percent. But uh, but those eight out of ten elements are absolutely something you should go and treat yourself to. Yeah, no, that's that's an awesome summary of the film. And I uh, one thing to underscore also is not only is the end um, unbelievably horrifying and it doesn't end well, there's also no music in the, in the credits, which I think is, is that's that underscore, it continues to underscore like the loss of individuality, the loss of what makes us us, right? Music and art, it's gone. It's there, it's just credits. And there's something so dry and so sterile and so awful about that, that even as you walk out, like if you're in a theater watching this, let's say, and you walk out, I can imagine seeing this at like an Alamo draft house or something that plays old cinema and they actually played this actually at Alamo Draft House, and so you, you just leave, and it's like you leave icky. <laughs> like you use the word icky; it's a great way to put it. You just leave feeling icky. You've, there's almost something so uniform in it when you leave. There's no individual. I don't know uh, something about not having music at the end. I think underscores everything you said. Um, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, man, great film. I'm glad you. I'm glad you selected it. Um, it uh, definitely made sure that uh, hearing those ultrasounds that I just don't ever want to have kids because I don't ever want to hear that noise again while I'm in like a doctor's office. That's actually like, just to be, that's actually the most horrifying. Everything you've been saying is very deep and important. No, just the ultrasound parts. That was the horror of this film for me. Anyway, anyway, throw it to someone else. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, I guess I'll, I'll give my sort of summary judgment of the film. I actually was thinking the same thing as Antonio. I would give it an eight out of 10, all things considered. I think, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot about the film to appreciate and to like, 
Um, yeah, it is the, the the atmosphere, the tone is excellent. The acting is solid. You know, the concept is is well done. But yeah, it, it's dragged down by. It wasn't so much the cheesiness for me again as I felt just several sort of you know sort of clunky shortcomings, mistakes. Like I said before, the the sort of the lack of a, a the prospect of any kind of uh, ability that they might fight back. The lack of a clear direction for the characters to take in the third act. Um, but you know that's it, it. Still makes it a very solid, you know, upstanding uh, uh, horror film. Love the ending. Yeah, it's bleak as fuck and you know uh, uh, creepy. Um, and you know, I, I I think I probably would put it actually below the thing in terms of the the films of this genre. Uh, uh, I think the thing is still probably the the the, the, the great masterpiece on uh, on the front of you know of body swapping sort of horror films. Uh, but this one, I think, might actually come. Come, it's definitely the best of the actual invasion of the body snatchers films. I think it probably comes in the genre. Probably comes second after the thing for me. Yeah, I'll underscore it. I was going to give it an eight out of ten, but um, I think what bumps it up to an eight point five is the PG rating with boobs and <laughs> Donald Sutherland beating his own head in. Like the fact that that's PG with those things, you get a point five for that. Uh, fun for the whole family. Fun for the whole family. Um, yeah. No, this is a, a great film. Um, look, I, I leave it with the loss of individualism and how you cash that out is just there's so many ways to do it. And I think looking historically at the fact that it's San Francisco leads you in one direction, looking at it from a completely individu individualistic perspective um, sends you in a, a completely different direction. But I think ultimately the thing we all sort of agree on is is the very obvious, broad uh, sort of um, uh, loss of 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 a kind of cultural identity through whatever mechanism that is, whether it's technocratic, whether it's uh, com uh, com uh, communitarianism, uh, fear of groupthink, um, the loss of, of artists and eccentrics, uh, the, all of that stuff, there, there's something being lost and, there, and there's a gaining of, of, of being essentially conformist and there's so many different ways we could cash that out. Um, but I think just that idea, just leaving it that generic is horrifying enough for me. I, it's, we could probably go deeper into it, but honestly, like I, I just I don't think you need to. Just that alone is 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 horrifying. Um, the loss of self, man. Uh, what makes you you? The things you love. I'd give this an eight, but I'm going to give it an eight point five. Uh, PG boobs and Donald Sutherland beating his own head in. I, goddamn, I'm giving it almost a higher rate. I think it is a higher rating than Antonio. Yay, yay for PG boobs. That does it. All right, I know uh, Antonio's gone. Um, I still want to give my spiel, though. Obviously, like you know, I'm, I'm just going to pull a Jeff Goldblum. I'm, I'm still going to insert my individual and talk about my thoughts because that's literally the most important thing to me. I didn't listen to any of you. Uh, you are I not a part person. I love it. <laughs> uh, all right, so there's one other thing that I, I definitely want to highlight here, and it, it's, it seemed really interesting, um, or at least to me. So I'm not going to say that this movie was a super scary film to me, but potentially because I've already kind of like thought through, you know, as you mentioned, sort of like this loss of self and what that might potentially mean. And when I say that is I've, I've thought about what it means to be a self. I, th I think just a little bit as kind of like my, uh, my uh, degree in psychology kind of really sort of led me to do, um, you know, when we think about when somebody gets overtaken by one of the body snatchers, you know, what is it that they're, they're actually removing, right? So we have evidence here that some of the memories are preserved you know, some of their, their history has preserved some of the personality, you know, there's some additions there. Um, you know, they obviously know a little bit about what it is to be kind of like that pod person. They have, you know, sort of like a lack of affect. So there is a hybridization there and there's a change, 
But what I wonder is, is it enough to say that a person sort of changes the way that they think to say that they're an entirely different person? So, you know, obviously as a person, you, um, you, you can't lose like body parts and stuff and like change who you are. You know, if you lose a hand, you're still you, you know, and so on and so forth. But we change our minds every single day. You know, we have new ideologies. We have new sort of beliefs that come in. You know, and we feel differently about things as we sort of evolve. But that doesn't mean we're an entirely different person. It doesn't mean that we have lost ourself. It just means we're a little bit different. And I think that might be the case here for when a, a body snatcher would sort of take a person over um, or at the very least show that the, the concept that we have of self might be a little bit sort of vapid. You know, it might not be as concrete as we actually think that uh, it is. Um, you know, so what is it to be a self? You know, I, I don't necessarily know that anything is truly lost whenever um, – whenever would something would like take you over. So like one of these body snatchers, like I don't necessarily think it's the case that any of these people in the movie really lost themselves. It might just be the case that they've changed. So that might be why my scary rating is a little bit lower uh, for this film, but definitely the, the visual aspects and the filmography, you know, it's incredible. Um, I'm, I'm still going to rate this. I would say overall, probably about a seven. I think it's a fantastic film. You know, obviously it's going to be the best in, in sort of like the series of the body snatchers films. Um, you know, it's, it's great. I'm going to give it a seven, not necessarily the scariest thing to me, but still just a fantastic film overall and something that I would recommend that, uh, that anyone who is into horror goes to watch. Yeah. So as far as the, the living forever or, um, adding in the talk about, um, what happens when you take away that element of your emotions and all that. Um, so there's like a whole movement. I forgot what it's called. Oh yeah. It's transhumanism. Uh, I have a whole bunch of friends that are in the transhumanism, uh, movement and it's the most horrifying fucking shit in the world to me. The idea that we could take all of our thoughts and memories, put it into a computer so that we could live forever and just keep on, uh, coming together in a, in a form where we all have all of our accumulative thoughts in a computer, with computer fast, uh, you know, abilities. Like whenever people start talking to me about this, I'm like, fuck no, I would not sign on to that. I'd be one of those, I'm a naturalist. I'm an old hokey and I'm not gonna be part of these games. I'd, I will be that person. I cannot latch onto that. I know what makes me who I am. It is the chemical reactions. It's, it's smelling things and reacting to the smell. Uh, the chemical reaction of smelling your lover, it, it does cause things to fire off in you that's just so fucking amazing. I don't want any part of any shit that doesn't have that in there. I refuse to be a part of it. I refuse. I will not be a part of it. Now, uh, if I need to have my cumulative uh, um, ideas put out there, that's why we have fucking books. That's how we've always, that's how we've been on the shoulders of giants is through writing books or, or even now making YouTube videos fine. Whatever I need to do to like continue on some legacy of mine is fine. I don't like the idea of trying to take my memories and put it into this supercomputer of groupthink. That is the, the most horrific thing I can think of and that's where this movie really adds on the horror to me. I don't like the idea of being this person who looks like me, sounds like me, uh, has the same memories as me, but just doesn't react to the world like me. I don't see You'll how that's me. Mind. You'll change your mind, Sharon. Shut up, you pod people. You will not have my soul. <laughs> I, I like it's. That is why this this so much scared me. And honestly, I didn't even know 
of this film. I had no concept of it. I had just seen other people's, I guess, kind of idea about it and how they've, like, transformed this idea into something else. And, um, I, no, I will have no part of this. I don't, like, when I watched it, I was like, nope, 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 burn it with fire. Like, I cannot... That's so interesting. We, you and I have such separate views on this. I, very different. Very, I, mine is a complete opposite, Chara. So I, I, that's, that's part of the appeal to me is I, I dug the idea of, well, cl uh, clarified. I think that in some ways you could cash out transhumanism or cash out the collective sort of consciousness of people and, and removing all of the things like negative emotion and things like that. I think, I think those things appeal to a certain extent to me, to me, um, I don't mind losing the things that make me me because I don't really, and this gets really philosophically dense. And of course, Antonio and Garrett leave as soon as we discuss this. I don't really think there is a me. I mean, like it, that sounds insane and, and maybe to some extent almost self-refuting. But if we cash this out through like another eight hours of discourse, um, I think that, I think that if you hold that interpretation of things, it makes it easier to digest the perspectives offered through these sort of horror films as more palatable. Um, so that's interesting that you feel that way because to me, I could see a scenario where like, I'm on board, I would sign up. Um, I don't like not being given the choice. You, I think it was you who mentioned that, or someone mentioned that as like being one of the main drivers of the conflict in this film is not having a choice. And I think that that's totally true. The problem for me was not having a choice. The problem for me also is just, um, you know, it, the sorts of things that it's going to take away. I think some of them I'd like to keep, but I, I'm not, a, I'm not averse to the idea of, having myself be assimilated and removing some of the things that make me me, because I don't really think there is such a thing as a me you necessarily. You are a Borg. You I are am. pod people. I am. I am. As soon as they left, I had to just throw in my two cents and be the be the pod person now that they've all left. I'm, I'm the representative I'm of the pod people. I'm not even surprised by this because, um, you know, a lot of the times I'm in arguments with fellow you know, secular or humanist or atheist, whatever labels they decide to choose themselves for. Whenever I'm in debates with people about that kind of mentality is um, I, I have this idea of who I am that is super important to me. A lot of people have a greater good kind of mentality and I get that, like I totally get that, but my individuality is of extreme importance to me. It really is. And, um, I don't care to be cloned. I don't care to have any anything like that happen to me. And now it's out there for everybody to know. It's well, they're <laughs> you, coming you are, for you now. Yeah, they're like coming every, for you. You're done. Everybody's aware, so now I'm gonna be the first person that will be conformed to like convince all of you. I'm sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which you guys, sucks. Did you guys have anything else you want to add for the film uh, before we bounce? Oh, you I didn't rate it. it. Did you? Yeah, I was going to say, I think it. everyone scored it. Say right. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't Give rate it. Uh, like, seriously, this is the most horrific shit ever. Like, fuck that. I do not <laughs> want to be birthed out of a plant in front of myself and while I sleep. No. Like, when I'm sleeping, that is truly, that is the time when you could really fuck me up, is try to do something to me when I'm sleeping. That is a plant rape while I'm sleeping. Fuck you. And, and fuck all of the elements of this film. It's a good way to put it, actually. Like, I, plant rape. It is. It's yeah. plant rape, just like Evil Dead. It's plant rape, and I, I want, want no part of that. I want no part of becoming a robot. I want no part of Leonard Nimoy's uh, constant... <laughs> constant trying to take away my emotions. <laughs> I don't want any part of his glove. Fuck, fuck this motherfucker. I don't want any part of his glove. That's the best. <laughs> Smell my glove. That's what I think of. Um... No, uh, uh, I, I, this is horrific to me. And if you watch the TV show, 
brain dead as I've, I've tried to tell you guys to go do. Uh, that takes this whole concept to the level that I consider just no. All the no's, burn it with fire, like, set it, set the whole, like, bomb America, I don't care. Get rid of whatever is going to cause us all to become these things. Like... If you rate this, like, higher than The Exorcist, I'm, this has been a success to me. If you... Oh, it, this is way up there for the fear <laughs> factor. Like, and, and not because, like, I was, like, jumping. Well, I did jump when the dog human-faced thing ran out with the banjos playing. That did make me jump. It's not like a jump scare fear. It's just a very real... Oh, it's such deeper. It's a deeper fear. It's like, this can't happen. Like, if, if this does happen, it needs to be burned. So, uh, burn it to the ground, uh, destroy the world if it, if necessary elements. Yeah, it's, it's a 9.5 on fear for me. Like, this, fuck this film. Wow. I, f I fuck all the parts about it. It, it fucked my head. I, I had nightmares. It was not good. <laughs> I don't like the idea of becoming a pod person at we all. We definitely got to send this to Antonio. That's interesting. You you rated this higher than a uh, whole point higher than him. That's really awesome. That's cool. Uh, with fear, yes. Uh, with with the elements of like how it is as a film, it's pretty good. I mean, it's eight. It's eight on film. Like it, the cinematography is great. The the end scene is iconic as fuck. So well shot. Like when you see the the trees the building, him walking down. It's just so beautiful and it's slow moving and you know what's coming, you know what's coming. And then our chick from, you know, one of his friends comes around and she's like, there you are. Let's try to stop these pod people. And he's like, ah! it's like, oh God, done. Done. That is, that is fantastic. It is right up there with uh, what's in the box for me, uh, ending to films. <laughs> fantastic shit. Uh, um, but it, it's, you know, it's a good movie all in all. It's a good, gross, icky, disgusting stuff. It made me never want to get a mud bath ever, ever, ever. Um, I don't know if one of the guys was farting in there while he was reading his muddy book. I don't, I don't so what know. what you do in a mud bath. You just if fart and watch the bubbles and bodies in there, like, yeah. I, I don't ever want a mud bath. And my, my daughter, when we were watching it, she was like, what are they even doing? I'm like, it was a thing people did. They did mud baths, but maybe this film is what turned everybody off of it because this is just nasty. <laughs> it ruined the mud bath industry. <laughs> so that's awesome. That's awesome. I I really like I really like the fact that you rated this so high. You rated it um to um in terms of the fear factor where it follows is for me. That was the highest rating I gave uh, at nine point five. Um, this horrifies me. The that's idea, awesome. the concept fucking horrifies me when the when the new remake of this comes out i'm looking forward to and it. and shara and shara and i'm glad i get to do this now i'm glad i get to do this now motherfucker that is your fear schema your fear schema is remember and it goes back to the exorcist being supplanted by the next generation which itself sort of is a sense of like losing losing individualism losing you right and an exorcist the the fear is losing you at least part of it is losing you through the next generation being supplanted by the next generation except in this film you're not supplanted by the next generation you're supplanted by you so that's awesome that that's that's starting you're starting to get like a formation don't of what erase does it for me you. <laughs> yeah yeah don't erase me there you go don't I like that. fucking erase me it's not okay <laughs> So yeah, that's awesome. I, I had no idea about this film, so it's exciting uh, to find something that is old that horrifies me to this to this end. I'm like, ooh, these are yeah, new feelings. I, I like yeah, this. Yeah, I feel like we should keep going backwards. I think I'm gonna. I think we're gonna pursue this. Um, so uh, and I guess I'll just use this as a segue to end it because I, I want to talk a little bit about this. Ben, did you have anything else you wanted to say? Are you good? I think I th pretty thoroughly had my say. Yeah, so totally good. Cool. So, so next week we are doing 
Um, or not next week, two weeks from tonight, actually. We're doing The Seventh Seal, uh, Ingmar Bergman, uh, 1958, 57, 58, 58. Um, have not seen it. Uh, this is Ben's, I, I, I really like, want to like magnify this as the one Ben has talked about in most every other session. So I'm really, really interested to see this. Uh, it is about a knight who has a chess game with death in the midst of the Black Plague, which sounds like a fucking awesome, Awesome. Right away, that sounds amazing. It sounds deep, and it sounds profound, and I can't wait to watch it. And it's 1958. So I think what we'll do is in two weeks, we're going to take a break next week. Two weeks from now, we'll do Seventh Seal. And then the week after that, we're going to do The Phantom Carriage. We're just going to keep going backwards. We're going to keep going backwards. I because, am so excited. Yeah, 19... What is what is Phantom Carriage here? Oh, 19, geez, it's in the 30s, I think. Yeah, 1930-something. But it was, is fantastically creepy. I love it. Yeah, yeah. So we'll just keep going backwards. I feel like going backwards has... um. It's a little antithetical to the goal of the podcast, but it feels better. <laughs> no, it did. Like I, I, it's it's just been a better. It's been a real good experiment. I mean, I started this by having this kind of like la di da current horror films. Let's find the good ones. But if it's true that if you go back, there are some ones that like the good shit today. Those same fears are exacerbated in ways that may even be better in the seventies and and eighties and apparently fifties. And we're just gonna keep going back. Let's see the decade that just it's no longer scary. Let's just keep going backwards. To when we they first have cinema and see how far we can go. Um, just go to the very first one where we go to the moon and there's crazy monsters that attack you and, and the only way to destroy them is with umbrellas. I know it's only like a 10 minute film, but oh my gosh, how horrific. <laughs> that probably hits some deep existential shit that we're just not privy to right now. But I, I yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do it. We're gonna go backwards. So uh, yeah, thank you for watching the uh, the session tonight, 1978, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, two weeks from now. Uh, Seven Seal, week after that, Phantom Carriage. And then we'll probably, uh, at that point, go back to more current films, maybe. Who knows? Who knows? We may just go backwards. Keep going backwards. Um, anyway, thank you for watching. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, and uh, we had a good amount of viewers this time. I think we had about f three or four the whole time, which was awesome. Uh, so feel free to check us out on our social media. Thanks for watching. Have a good night.